today we're going to, uh, like I said, be jumping into what is very likely the final part of this chapter. Um, and uh, I'm hoping everyone will feel the payoff was worth it. Come on. Um, I've been pretty excited about it. I'm going to spend the last hour going over all the things, all my notes, and hopefully I don't forget anything because there's a lot of stuff to cover today. All right, so we'll start with just a little bit of a recap where we left off last time. Um, if you are caught up on the story, <laughs> you probably know this, but uh, our heroes, our four heroes, and their entourage of allies have been slowly moving westward through the empire of Oromon, the very northern end of Oromon, which is one of the largest single areas to come through merged worlds and the home of their nemesis and the reason that they're traveling. There is a fabled Tower of the Gods somewhere in the very northwestern edge of Oromon where it is rumored that this tower exists and they've been told that the Emperor of Oromon is there uh, being a jerk and most importantly trying to summon his goddess into physical form. Pandora is the goddess of lies and deceits, and he is the top of the food chain when it comes to her worshippers. This is something she's tried before. Um, and so our heroes are on their way to stop her. Hopefully, right? But they've been traveling, getting involved in a little bit of adventures, this and that. And in the end, where we left off, they were traveling through up again, a little bit more north through the mountains... Um, of the choices that they have. Uh, thank you, Alex. You have a great day, too. Of the choices that they had, they felt that was the safest. Um, and mid-travel ended up surrounded by a massive, well, I should say a large group of ogres. Um, physically, there was a chance that they could do some damage, but most likely couldn't win. So the ogres, seeing how capable they were, decided to kill two birds with one stones and made them an offer that there were a group of hill giants living uh, just a day or so northwest of them. Northeast, I'm sorry. Northeast of them. And if they were to destroy the threat of those hill giants, that the ogres would give them safe passage through their lands, which is really the direction they need to go. So, uh... They said yes. And that's kind of where we left on. Alright, so let's uh let's let's continue on then. So they travel northwest. They know that they're being watched by ogres the majority of the time. Mostly because ogres aren't that good at hiding and aren't trying to. Um, they're just staying a distance back, making sure that uh, our, our group of friends don't decide to uh, try to go around or be sneaky about it all. So, they travel this direction. Now, the reason that the ogres themselves could not take care of the hill giants was primarily because of location. Where the hill giants live, uh, and they're much larger than humans and even ogres, um, it's a very difficult place to get to unless you're that big. And the hill giants have pretty good defenses set up, which is, you know, big rocks and things, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you can pick up a boulder, that's a lot. And traps as such, that should the ogres try to march en masse against them, 
they would have very, very many casualties before they really ever got up to the large cave system or large caves that the hill giants call home. A smaller group, like our guys, who are more than capable of handling large threats, might have a better chance. Mm, excuse me. Might have a better chance. And so that's what they discuss. The ogres give them a, this only a little bit of information because they don't have that much themselves. Several big caves up in this direction. Here's the signs you're looking for. You'll know when you get there because the smell will start hitting. Hill giants are unusually stinky. At least these ones are. And so they travel that direction. Climbing the mountains is in fact difficult. As they're going on, it gets harder and harder. To the point that for the first time in this adventure, it dawns on them, maybe we should be using our chest of holding and, and flying carpet. Because they do have a flying carpet. But fitting everybody in the chest of holding is possible, but difficult. Because again, you cannot open the chest of holding from the inside. So you are putting a lot of faith in whoever is outside that they can get you out. Should they fall into a trap or die, you will suffocate to death. Because there's only so much air in the chest of holding. And long ago they figured out how many people can be in there for how long. And with a group their size, it's no more than 20-30 minutes tops. So that's a lot. That's a lot to get done in a short period of time. But at this point, they are kind of under the assumption we may not have a lot of choice. At the same time, if transporting a group that size secretly in, up closer inside of the caves uh, would be an amazing boon for a surprise attack kind of thing. If whoever's outside can find a place. So they have to make a decision of who will stay outside because they do determine that's their best bet. Load everybody in. And I should also mention, the flying carpet does have a down cool-down time. You can use it for a period of time, but then there is a period of time you have to let it rest. Um, so it's not like you could travel on it the whole way here. Um, they have to make a decision who's going to stay outside. Uh, and Dandy, of course, is the number one choice. Uh, although, a lot of times it's hard to believe or understand, you know, Dandy being a kender and the curiosity killing the cat kind of mentality that she gets chosen for these important things but when it's important Dandy knows that and she's mostly serious and it uh, she is by far the sneakiest person the other one who's going to stay out with her is going to be Quan because Quan is almost as sneaky as her um and almost as good in combat. Eh, maybe not quite as almost, but close. And they're their sneaky crew. But they decide they need to keep at least one more person out. Someone who has some other options. And in this situation, they decide they're going to keep out Magnus. Now, Magnus is a relatively powerful mage and the head of Mercy's Battle Mages. And one of the only two mages they have with him. Uh, so Magnus, on the off chance magic is needed, is the third one that stays outside. So they do their best to climb up as best they can. Sure enough, as they're going up the mountains, they very easily begin to see the signs of hill giants. Um, everything from clearly paths, you know, 
You think if you wear a path in the woods, or an animal does, it's a small path, you can notice it. When it's something this big, you'll notice big footprints and regular walking. Even parts where stones have been broken away to make it easier to be stairs, which are very large stairs and not easy to climb. And then again, there's the refuse trash, broken wagons, barrels, uh, bones, of course, things of that nature that are just rotting and such and stinking everything. They just kind of take it outside the cave and chuck it down the mountain kind of thing. All their trash and, of course, their own waste as well. So, everybody gets inside the chest of holding, except for Dandy, Quan, and Magnus. Magnus does not have the invisibility spell. None of them do. Neither of the mages do. It's just not something they have in their repertoire. So there's no just turning invisible and sneaking in. So they decide that they're going to actually fly above the cave. They're going to try to come down the hill towards the hill giants. Because their belief is, of course, that's the last place you're going to expect an attack. It's from an area even harder to get to than where you are. So they wait till it comes pretty late at night. Uh, they don't want to be pitch black because they want to be able to see themselves and there's not much light up here in the mountains. It's relatively cloudy this evening. So it's mostly dark when they finally seal everybody up in the chest of holding. Dandy, Quan, and Magnus jump on the flying carpet and Magnus is literally in the back counting trying to keep track of the time, making sure that they get that chest of holding before everybody dies. Because I say everybody can last 20 minutes. That's at an extreme. They would like to get that win- that thing open in 15 minutes and let air rush in. So they have a very short window. So they go booking it up as quickly as the carpet will take them, in a bit of a roundabout way. And as they're going, they can see the light from the opening of the cave. Clearly there's something probably awake in there, or alive. It's not pitch black yet. They don't really hear sounds or anything, but they can see light flickering from a relative from a large cave entrance. A hill giant's got to walk through it, so it's got to have some good size. And they fly up and above it. Um, even above it, there's areas which are clearly paths that the Mount Ogres take, very likely uphill and such. Uh, ten minutes, Bragg, you're not far at all. Um, and six of that was just recap, so you're just a couple minutes in. So they take the flying carpet and fly above, but again, they see signs of passing, so the hill giants do come up here as well. They've been told that there were six to eight of them. That's a lot of hill giants. That is a lot of giants in hills. Uh, Luckily, it's hill giants and not mountain giants. Mountain giants are worse. So these hill giants, much like the ogres, were forced north by Oromon. They were originally allied with the ogres, but as they were stuck up here where there was less ability to find food and such, came up, try to survive best you can, Uh, not only did they raid humans and such, they also raid the ogres and things as well. So, that's why the ogres want them gone. They basically go as far as they can within the safety window, and then they land and pop the chest open. Mercy's the first one her head pops out, asks where they are, what's going on. Dandy and Quan give the lay of the land. And Mercy's like, okay, and she starts climbing out. Everybody starts coming out of the chest of holding. So this time that Dandy and Quan start moving a little bit closer. 
We're going to go in there and see if they can get a look at what's going on. Noises. So, they make their roles, of course, hiding in shadows, moving silently, and all those other cool thief skills. Uh, but they make their way moving towards above the entrance. So they're trying to kind of be on top of it. Uh, but there's not a whole lot of places to hide. Even as a mountain, it's, you know, not that jaggedy that you can hide there. Um, and again, there's the wear, worn down stone and such from constant passage through here. So they make their way down to the entrance and looking inside as best they can. And literally, Quan is holding Dandy by the feet and dangling her down. This was her idea, by the way. She's like, no one will expect it. So he's holding her feet and kind of dangling her down over the cave, holding her. She's very light, fortunately. Think about how Michael will kill her, kill him if he drops her. And she's, you see her little head go, what? except upside down. Inside, she sees five hill giants. Two of them are already sleeping, passed out in the back. Another two are sitting by a fire, tending some type of large hunk of meat on it. Either a very large deer, moose, or a cow. Something big hunk of meat on there, but roughly cut so much that they can't tell exactly what animal. And then there's another one just inside the door. And he just kind of to see he's sitting back almost nodding off, but he's just kind of sitting there. And they can't really tell if he's on guard. Doesn't really look like that much, but that's probably what he's there for, even though he's not doing a good job of it. There's a large club leaning against the wall next to him. Now, they heard there were six to eight of them. They only see five. They can also see that in the very back of the room, another large opening which seems to go into another cave or deeper into a cave. Could be another room, they're not sure. So they have to make a decision. Do they try to sneak through this cave of three conscious ogres and get more recon, or do they go back? As I'm sure you can assume, Quan thinks they should go back. Dandy thinks they should go in. After a long discussion, it's determined that Dandy is going to go inside. He's Quan is not happy about this. Because again, something happens to Dandy, now Mercy will kill him. So he's not happy about this, but she has way more sneaky skills than he does. Uh, literally, her thief skills are... By this point at her level, they're relatively through the roof. So, she decides she's going to try to sneak in. The sun's all the way down by this point. Their friends are up on the mountain just waiting anxiously. But they also know that sometimes, you know, something starts walking around. Dandy and Quan may have to lay low for 15-20 minutes till they have an opportunity to move again. So, they, don't, they, they, they do their best to be patient. They don't go rushing in, trusting that their friend's you know, experience will pay off and not expecting them to go into the cave. If something should happen, Quan's supposed to go back and tell Mercy immediately, because he sure isn't heck not going to be able to save her himself. So that's why Dandy's going in alone. The first problem is the first ogre, right? It's the guy sitting by the door with the club. Now he, he kinda kinda nodding off and then popping his head back up again and watching the people. He licks his lips a little bit, so obviously he's waiting for the food, right? But it's taking forever, and you know, kind of snoring and waking himself up. What level are they again? At this point, I want to say that they were averaging around level 12. Um, but Dandy almost always was one level higher than everyone else. 
through some early game stuff, Dandy got a chunk of experience points all on her own through a solo adventure that uh, made her just slightly higher level than everyone else. I want to say it always was Dandy was was like 13, Mercy and Darsh were 12, and Artemis was just becoming 12. Like, she would become 12, they'd be 12 for a little bit, and then they would step up and she'd be one level behind. So Artemis was, was a little bit farther behind, because again, that happens a lot with spellcasters, <laughs> especially clerics who don't have a lot of damaging. Sometimes they just have to stand there and wait for a chance to do something. Um, but the way I warded experience, I made sure that they were never too far apart from each other. Um, but Dandy decides she's going to go the route no one would expect and sneak under his chair. Because I forgot to mention, he is sitting on a large, crudely made chair. He's kind of leaning back in. He's not like, you know. And she's going to sneak under his chair between the sleeping hill giants because that is the farthest from the fire. So if you were to look in the door, imagine looking in the door, just to the right of the door, that's your, that's your half-dozing off hill giant. Past him in a corner, the two sleeping. Now the room goes in into the left more, so on the left side, um, is in the left, very left corner, is where the fire is. And then the far back left is where the opening is to the other room. She knows that this is also very dangerous because she's trying to move between the sleeping hill giants. She has to make a lot of rolls. Uh, she almost messes up right out of the gate. In almost the very first roll, she she fails one and succeeds in a second one. Uh, the first one was the bad one. She failed it and had to do a secondary roll to hide because she made a noise. Uh, and this made her stop for a minute and think about whether she should continue in. She's feeling very confident until she failed the first roll. <laughs> Hello, Rhino. Welcome. And so she's like, well, maybe I should rethink this. <laughs> And Quan's like, come on, man, it's the first roll. And I kind of give her that look. He's like, shut up, I know what I'm doing. She decides she's going to carry on. Uh, hoping that her she got her bad one out of the way. And she did pretty good from that point on. She managed to move past the ogre. And, of course, I random rolled to see if he's asleep or awake at that time. because it was, And that's kind of how his thing worked. Is I would roll a d4, and that's how many rounds he'd be asleep. And she would never know if it was one round, three rounds, four rounds. So she had to be careful in her movements. Making it to the second ogre, she realizes that uh, one of them is female, one of them is male, and they just conked out next to each other. Uh, but there's a space enough between that if she's very careful, she should be able to squeeze through. Now, I think that by this point, this is episode 56 of Merge Worlds, most of you should know I am a jerk. <laughs> and so, uh, of course, in the middle of that, one of them decided to roll over. And when that when that one did, the blanket got pulled. The big looks like a big animal skin gets pulled off the second one. Danny was going to try to sneak because again, hill giants even laying down are taller than Danny. She's going to try to sneak right through that blanket space because there's a good this far between them. She's like, if I'm just quiet, I'm good. The other one starts reaching and trying to grab the blanket, and as it does, Dandy's having to make dexterity checks to dodge being grabbed instead of the blanket. 
and she's just kind of bouncing back and forth and rolling and trying to be quiet at the same time. And eventually, one grabs it, the the the, the female one grabs it and yanks a bunch back over, and the the male puts it up, snorts from it, and then goes back to sleep. And she's like just sitting there, not moving, hoping they conk out, and they finally do. And she goes her plan to sneak back through under the blanket where they're separate. You know, the blanket's held tight, almost like a tent for her. And she cruises on through. But I had a lot of fun making her make those rolls because I was making her act it out. She's just jumping back and forth. Now, after this point, she's now going to be at the closest to the ones tending the fire. She's going to be in this whole situation. And, of course, the closer she gets to that, the brighter it is, the harder it is to hide. So she's just moving very small increments at a time. Uh, fortunately, one of them has the back to her completely, and the other one, she's kind of just to the side. So unless she makes a, a real quick peripheral movement, he would, hopefully would have a reason to see. She succeeds in making it into the back cavern. Now, in this back cavern, she finds another big cave. There are no lights on in this room, so she takes a few minutes, lets her infravision kick in, and sure enough, well, not a few minutes, takes a few seconds, but, you know, takes a moment. And sure enough, she can see two more sleeping hill giants. Um, the smell in this room is really, really bad. And not only is it smell just stank and unwashed and gangrene, because you know, that's how things work, uh, but also smells really bad of alcohol. The first room smelled somewhat bad of alcohol, but this room smells really bad of just a, a sour alcohol, probably gone bad. And in this room, there's two sleeping together again, and one of them is bigger than all the others. Uh, yes, Rhino, this is, I wrote this over 30 years. <laughs> Very long story I've been telling. But yes, I wrote all of this. Um, so she's like, okay, well, that big one, sleeping with that one. If it's another male female deal, that could be the leader or something. And, you know, it's Dungeons and Dragons, right? So the leader is always the scary one. Because the boss has minions, you know. Every boss fight, the boss is the hard one. And usually, especially if you're like a hill giant or an ogre, you're in charge because you've already whooped everybody else, right? That's how minotaurs work, too. So, she has to assume that's the problem guy. Now, unfortunately for Dandy, I rolled well for me and bad for her. And the food got done. And so, one of the ogres, or hill giants, I'm sorry, yells out something, and then the, the one that was leaning on the chair wakes up. Huh? Ah, finally, he gets up and starts walking over towards the fire. And the two in the room with her start to rise. Yes, Bragg, that is correct. And uh, so, they start to rise and get up, and sure enough, the biggest one is the female. She's huge. Um, and they're smarter. Most most giants, the females, are smarter. And so they get up, and Dandy's in a spot, because they're now, now they're ready for food, and she's got to hide. So I ask the young lady, what, what is it you want to do? What are we going to do in this moment? And the question was, are they, are they covered in a blanket? And I said, yes, they also have a large animal skin blanket thing. Probably several sewn together to be big enough for them. And she goes, are they getting up together? Are they both waking up getting ready to leave? I said, yes. She goes, that means when they get up, they're going to toss the blankets to the side. 
when they do that, I want to jump into the blanket. I was like, really? She goes, yes. As they're just getting up and flooring the blanket off, I want to dive under that so I'm under the blanket when they stand up so they can't see me. I'm like, all right, that's fair. We'll give that a shot. Pulls the rolls off successfully. She's quiet and she sneaks in under the blanket, which the smelliest thing ever you can imagine, this stanky blanket. And she's in there, and I made her... <laughs> second edition, the saving throws work differently than fifth edition. So there's, uh... There are saving throws for different things, specifically. So, uh... <laughs> she had to roll to see whether or not she vomited. Uh, but she did not. She was able to hold it down, but not very well. So now she's in a pickle. Because she's stuck in this back cave. All of the other ones are eating this hunk of meat probably arguing or fighting and drinking as well. And she's stuck in the back. There's no way she's sneaking past all seven of these things awake. Quan also sees this and immediately heads back to everybody else. And preparing himself for the look he was going to get, which he got, he told Mercy what had happened. And you know, Mercy's like, did it look like she got caught? He's like, no, I didn't, they didn't act like they caught her. There was no alarm or any weird noises. I think that she's hiding somewhere. And Mercy's like, well, that's all I need to know. Let's go. And so our, our group of heroes make their way down to the cave entrance. And it's determined that several are going to charge in first to try to catch them unaware. Um, and we're going to start with a minotaur charge. It's going to be Garrig, Darsh, and Jorn. Immediately followed by Seamus and Mercy. Uh, while Mercy's the smallest of that group, she punches a bigger punch than everyone there except Darsh. So they're going to rush in first with all the melee after that, at which point Magnus and Edwin, the two mages, are going to be prepared to whip out some spells should they be needed. Um, so, you know, good times. So... That's kind of what happens. They go charging in, and they do catch them unaware with the guard eating the meat. There was nobody watching. Um, and so they, they just come busting through this cave entrance. And there was like a piece of cloth or something that was hanging over, like, you know, again, a piece of big leather or something. Probably somebody's tent that they stole hanging across the door. So they just, whew, this minotaurs just come charging in, weapons blaring, no sound of them coming up from anywhere. Uh, and it definitely catches the hill giants off guard. And in the very first round, they they all target the same one, and sure enough, take one down almost immediately. Um, and it was closest one there too. Dandy sees this and realizes this is her opportunity to help, because all of the hill giants, of course, jump up, and the cave's not that big. I mean, it is for our guys, but not for Hill Giant. So within almost reach of everyone is something they can use as a weapon. A couple of them grab clubs. One of them grabs just a flaming stick out of the fire. One of them, if I remember, grabbed just like a huge thing. They were already had a huge stick in their hand they were poking the fire with. Um, I think one of them had a really big fork, which was like a pitchfork that they probably stole from a farm, but they were using it as a fork. So they had like just, they had some form of weapons to use. But as they all turn to face our friends, that puts Dandy behind them. And as I've said many times throughout this story, one of Dandy's greatest attributes in combat is the ability to backstab. 
Uh, in second edition, it was the thief's greatest combat ability, in my opinion. And, they, and if they successfully pull it off, they can do a whole lot of damage. Because the assumption is not that they're just stabbing you in the back, that they have that opportunity to aim for specific things. The neck, back of the leg, hamstring, you know what I mean? Inner thigh, cut, cut a major artery. The point is that they have that opportunity where you don't know they're there to do damage to you in a very unprotected way that you're not expecting. Um, and as, at the very beginning, as, as, a, as a rogue level one, you get to do double damage. But as you get higher up in level, you can get up to five times damage with a successful backstab. So at Dandy's level at this point, I want to say she had a times four and was about to have a times five. So Dandy uses that. She sneaks in while these the first couple rounds of combat are going on, and she targets the big female. Um, knowing that she, and within the first couple rounds, she's the issue, because she's clearly yelling out what to do in the in language they don't speak. No one there speaks Hildren. But she kind of steps back, and she's letting everyone else fight. And she's the one, if I remember correctly, grabbed the thing out of the fire, which she had a big flaming stick. She was almost holding it like a torch, but she was letting the people in front do the work of wearing them down so she could step in should she need to. So Dandy decides to take on the female head hill giant all by herself. Um, and she has to make several rolls because she's decides she wants to try to climb up the wall and jump on on his back, jump on her, on her neck. Dandy's tiny, so it wouldn't be that hard. The climbing was hard. The jumping, not so much. So after the first couple rounds where everybody's fighting, and our, here, our group of people have a really good for that first couple of rounds where they literally, like, I think a second one fell in the second round. They had some really good rounds right up front. Um, and then the third or fourth round... The hill giant started to get a couple really good hits, and it doesn't take many good hits from a hill giant to wipe out some people. Um, and I want to say it was Jorn, it was Jorn or Garrick. I'm, I'm saying it was Jorn that took a real big club, and he literally was flown through the air, just sent cracking. And Artemis immediately had to rush to heal him. Artemis is the only healing cleric here. By this point, others have jumped into melee. we got Weston the Paladin. You've got your archers, and this is another great spot where Nathalian and uh, the Wade brothers, or the Owens brothers, I'm sorry, Lars and Wade Owens, who are rangers, they start, you know, they, it's easy for them to shoot over their friends' heads at eyeballs and faces, and uh, that really helped keep the amount of damage the hill giants were doing down because they're trying to protect their face while trying to beat people who are trying to stab them and club them and such. Dandy gets high enough and makes her jump and lands successfully on this lady giant's shoulder, immediately rolling to attack. And she's immediately going for the neck. She's trying to stab a serious. Uh, and she rolls well. She does a chunk of damage. Um, not enough to kill, but enough to do issues that the female has to address this. She's now ble blood just pouring out of her throat. She's got to grab like this. And as she does, Dandy literally tries running to the other side of her shoulder and tries to attack again on the next round and is successful doing another chunk of damage. Now this, she reaches back and grabs a hold of Dandy. Not like, oh, I got you, but like grabs her, her enough to kind of knock her off. And Dandy falls to the ground. But she did two really good hits 
on this female hill giant. But now the hill giant's turned around, all eyes on Dandy. Um, Artemis sees this. Mercy and everybody else in combat. Artemis sees this and yells out to everyone, Dandy's in trouble. Something along those lines. Help Dandy or whatever. Um, and everyone's kind of stuck in combat. Darsh decides to use his boots, which he hadn't used yet. His boots are charging that just send him flinging forward. Uh, in this melee mess that's going on in this cave, he knows there's a good chance he might trip, uh, but he, he, he doesn't want to, he takes the chance. He decides to go for it. And so he charges, uh, and he does trip, uh, but he trips so much that what's happened, he goes flying through the air, which is sometimes still beneficial because he's a big, heavy dude. And if he can hit somebody, even if he trips, that's still 350 pounds flying at you of muscle, metal, and bone. Um, and one and a half horns. Remember, half his horn's broken off. But one and a half horns. He does trip, sure enough, but he hits the female hill giant square in the back of her legs. Um, and she tumbles backwards over top. He rolls a bit. He fights his way up, and the hill giant is getting up, and he and Dandy are faster. One moment. J.P. Pearson's fifth month of being a member just kicked in. Thank you, J.P. So, um... Darsh and Dandy... Dandy's already up at this point. Darsh gets up. The hill giant gets up to her knees. She's still taller than Darsh. But she doesn't get up any further. And she did drop her fire. So now she's just kind of like clubbing at Darsh, but Darsh has his weapons. And Dandy's in there with her little knives and such as well. That puts this woman on the offensive, Darsh and Dandy against her, everybody else in the other group. It lasts another four or five rounds of combat. Um, some minor injuries to everyone, um, but overall it went well. I actually had a much bigger plan for the female <laughs> hill giant to do. Um, but Dandy did so much damage to her in her two attacks that I had she I in a vein of realism she had to address that she came up mosquito like she had to do something about that uh, and so she did not get to do what she was going to do which was to cast a spell because she was a minor spellcaster um, but she never got that opportunity she got pulled into melee combat before she could cast a spell so it takes a little while but sure enough eventually all the hill giants are down. Uh, Jorn has been healed to the point that he's stable, but he's still pretty hurt. and He's awake now, but he's wobbly. Um, and, of course, Garrick is always ribbing the boy. Like, sleeping on the job kind of thing. You know, He's the older, wiser veteran. You know, in my day, if we got caught sleeping on the job, you know, we'd be digging latrines for months. You know, stuff like that. Jorn's rolling his eyes, trying not to pass out from the headache, the minor concussion that he has. Of course, they search the room because they're greedy adventurers, and they do find some minor treasure things that were taken. Uh, they do find a couple spell scrolls that the mages take, which uh, are beneficial for them, because uh, she was a minor caster. Um, but nothing major that's story affecting at this time. They decide they, ha they don't want to spend the night in this cave. It's way too stinky. And they heard six to seven, seven to eight of these things. They killed seven. There could be an eighth one somewhere. May not want to be in here when someone surprises them. So they decide they're going to leave. 
and uh, they have to bring back some type of proof that this was successful. And I want to say they took a toe, like just a real big hill giant toe, like the big toe. It was a very big toe. Darsh had to carry it comfortably. I mean, nobody else could carry it comfortably. But they get a ways away from here, climbing. They decide to go back up the mountain, again, hoping if someone does come back, they'll think they went down the mountain and chased them that way. Uh, but they were lucky. There were no other. There were only seven. I rolled to see how many. Because I like to do that. Sometimes I like to be surprised. They camp the night without any type of fire. Um, and the next day, make their start heading their way back to the ogres. They're only halfway back until they run into some ogres, right, who were watching them. They didn't follow them all the way up. But they see them coming back alive with this giant toe, and the ogres are like, and, and half of them take off and go running back to the head ogres while the other ones are staying in distance. You know, and when, when it, our heroes look like confused where to go, they're pointing this direction, like, follow me, follow me. I follow the ogres back. Again, took a day to get there. Takes another day to get back. They arrive where they first met these ogres. Close to it. With this big toe. Can you put the giant body in the chest of holding? You could not. So the thing with the chest of holding is the same as with the bag of holding. The opening doesn't get any bigger. So it's the size of what you'd expect a large pirate chest to be. It's big enough that the minotaurs can squeeze down in. There's a ladder. They can get in relatively comfortably. But the opening never gets any bigger. So you are limited in... You can put as much in the chest of holding as will fit in it, but it does have to fit through the opening. It's the same with a bag of holding. I have a bag of holding that's the size of a car inside of it. The bag's this big. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm going to put cannonballs in there. It's not going to fit. So... That's, that is always a limitation, is the opening of the thing. And that stopped them from bringing stuff back before. Um, giant, like, they'll, they'll take, when they've killed dragons, they brought back some teeth and nails and scales and some things of that nature, but, like, they couldn't bring back the head or anything like that. It would never fit in there. Good question, though. Good question. The chest of holding is something I created specifically for Merge Worlds. It's not a, it's one of the magic items that I did not take from traditional D&D. So the rules in it are kind of mine, but I try to base it as much on a regular bag of holding as possible, other than you can breathe in it temporarily. Um, and the fact that it breaks the one bag of holding rule. And the bag of holding rule is you can't put a bag of holding in a bag of holding. If you try, bad things happen, your bag of holding destroyed and all your stuff is lost. Um, but the chest of holding is immune to that. You can Players with a bag of holding can climb in there. But you can't put a chest of holding in a bag of holding. That's against the rules. Make sure they knew that. So, anyways, enough about that. So they, uh, they make it to the uh, ogres, who are genuinely surprised that they were successful, especially that quickly, and very happy with them. I want to point out that the ogres in this situation are not like what you'd expect. They're not just a group of eagle, evil ogres who want to squash and kill and whatever. They're a group of, of humanoids that were forced off their lands and are forced to survive up here, doing what they have to to survive. Sometimes that means raiding and maybe even killing humans, but that's because those humans are now living on the land that was theirs to begin with. Um, sometimes the bad guys aren't always the bad guys. 
Uh, and I've been very careful to make that point important in D&D so that my characters have to be like, okay, here's the story we heard, but is that the real story? Maybe we should find out more about the other side because sometimes point of view means everything. The hill giants are ecstatic. Or, I mean, sorry, the ogres are ecstatic. The hill giants, their biggest issue at this point has been eliminated. On top of that, they can now partially move up into that area where the hill giants were, which is hard to get up to, but definitely, because it's hard to get to, much more defendable position. And there was, if I remember correctly, like a, like a good stream or something that went through there. There was clean water, and that's why the hill giants were there. And another reason that the ogres wanted access to that, because it was much harder to come down out of the mountains into human land to try to get clean water than if they could get up to this river that flowed on the other side of the hill giants area. So the hill giants, or the ogres are true to their word. They're ecstatic. In fact, they're they're friendly with our people, shocking them. Mercy and Darsh are like, like, hey, the shake people are shake ogres are shaking their hands and stuff, and you know, give them shoulder bumps and such, and well done, and even dandy. They're like, hey, you helped. That's awesome. Way to go. And, and our guys are like, I thought we were gonna have to kill two hundred of these. <laughs> like they literally had that thought. Like I thought we were gonna have to fight our way out of all these ogres. The ogres are like, no, we appreciate that. And the leader of the ogres is like, I'm true to my word. Uh, we not only do you have free passage through our lands whenever you need, we consider you allies at this point. And on top of that, we believe you that you hate Oromon. That makes you even more allies, because you hate them and we hate them. And now you, they find out a bit more of the story. We're going to go to try to kill the Emperor. The Ogres are like, wish we knew that before. We wouldn't ask you about the Ogres. Yes, you could pass through our lands to kill that prick. We're fine with that. In fact, they offer them an escort to show them the fastest way through. And legitimately, that happens. After a day of celebration, where they're treated like allies, uh, which is kind of funny because... Uh, of the stress of it all, Dandy decided to drink a little. Dandy is a lightweight, literally. And Dandy got drunk. And Dandy's only been drunk a couple times uh, in the story, and it's always entertaining. But, uh, of course, she starts telling stories of the battles she's won and the times she fought the dragon and all that stuff, basically by herself. You know, she didn't do any of that stuff. It was all everybody else. But, you know, the ogre's like, whoa! Like, yeah. So, because I basically run this group. These guys, they follow me. I'm in charge here. <laughs> She's going on a rants about stories and such. And some of the stories she tells, of course, are true, which is still impressive. Uh, but Danny gets drunk on ogre mead, which for some reason she was like, this is disgusting. I can't stand this. I'll never touch this again. She got hammered on it. I was kind of the stress of the situation and being away from her family. I think she decided to do that. Which I thought was a very good piece of character development and character acting by the young lady who played Dandy. She legitimately was like, I would think at this point she's away from her daughter, she's away from her husband, even though they get to talk with them occasionally that they're doing okay, she's, this is the first time she's had to leave her, chill, her child since it was born. Um, and she's not taking it well. You know, everything, every st step they take could be her last. She may never get to see her kid again. And I thought that was a really, really good arc that she brought, because they all had that to a degree. Um, but Dandy as a character really seem to have that worse. Like, you know, they're, they're the heroes. They're out doing the things. The heroes sometimes have to leave their families behind, but Dandy really struggled with it. Um, and I thought that was really, really well done that that, that, that that so strong of an issue was brought in the character that she made a point of bringing it up in conversations and such. 
Like, we're going to do this, we need that. Listen, I just want to get done so I can get back to my family. You know, she's the one who's, who's talking like that. And that's not normally what the Kender would say. You know, the Kender is like all about the wanderlust and the adventure. So Dandy was against type, but exactly the type of character Dandy had becoming. And I really, really liked that development for her. I wanted to mention that. I thought it was a, a great part of acting. So Goran One Tusk gives them their uh, escorts, which is six ogres who know the fastest way through the trails, at least on this side going that way. It's not dangerous, it's just hard climbs, and they know paths and even some caves that can get them there. Um, so because of that, they're able to make really good time over the next section of travel. Um, uh, it takes eight days to go through the ogre lands, and then get back to re-entering re Oromon. Without them, it would have taken almost twice as long. Um, and assuming they didn't get lost and add extra time on top of that. Uh, but even though they wasted a day to two days with the hill giants, they gained eight days by earning their trust. And at the same time, earning another potential ally who hates Oromon. They're really good at gathering these people and befriending them. Because, you know... Even if they are successful in this mission, Oromon is still a massive empire. Um, that's still a hostile empire on Serenity's border. So the more people you have on your side might be more beneficial in the future, right? So it's at this point they finally come out of the come out of the mountains. They they bid their uh, they bid their ogres farewell, who have been nothing but friendly and polite and stuff, you know, but nothing but just an excellent guides and chatting and such. And of course, our heroes are sharing food and drink with them, as they do with every group they come across, whether it's, you know, here's some coins, here's some that. They do share that. A lot of the treasure they got from the hill giants, they gave to the ogres, which helped because a lot of that was taken from them anyways. So that opened up another, again, line of friendship there. Um, so yeah, sharing the food and traveling with them, it was, a, it was actually really good travel for them. One of the best sections of traveling they had this whole time. And he said, gravitate towards them. It is very much like that. Well, you know, when I, I kind of... I kind of that's, a, that's a great point, Turtle. And I kind of always viewed it this. Oromon is the bully in the schoolyard. The bully that picks on everybody. And then you finally have somebody who stands up against that bully. Everyone else who has been a victim of that bully, might be a little more inspired to stand up when that one person finally takes that first step. Serenity was that first step. They're like, no, we're not going to let this happen. And people saw that, and they're like, here's people willing to fight. I want to be on that side. Um, and again, they're diametrically opposed. You know, Empire of Ormond worships Pandora, the goddess of lies and deceit. Mercy is a worshiper of... Zorn, the god of truth. Um, and she decided that before I ever created Oromon. Oromon partially came into creation for that exact reason. Not that I, at the time, knew Serenity was going to exist, but uh, I wanted someone that was very much opposed to Mercy. It was always just to be their bad guy, but meant to be Mercy's bad guy. You know, Artemis had Daedalus. You know, and now a man in a hat. <laughs> so she has problems of her own to deal with, you know. Um, but Mercy's, Mercy's nemesis was always meant to be this. So um, it, it just well worked out for the story that way. 
and would make sense why they would be the ones chosen to go fight them. They finally get out of the mountains. They're traveling. They still have the map and information that they were provided. Just call one's mom and she'll die, right? <laughs> but uh, she, uh, they, they, they get in there and now they're traveling again. And, and sure enough, they have a map and the ogres are like, yeah, we, we, yeah we're, you're going to come right out over here. This is where that's going to come out. Wow, turtle, you don't know about the man in the hat. Ooh, that's an episode you, you'll want to hear. <laughs> Remind me after the stream and I'll track down that episode specifically for you. Because it was like in the last 10 minutes of one episode. And it's one of the most important 10 minutes I've ever done. Excellent. Excellent. It's like the last 10 or 15 minutes tops. I know where it is. I just got to find it in the episode. So, uh, they then are now continuing west. A little bit southwest again, because now they're traveling back in, but not very far so. From what they know, and what they got from Doran, the blind guy, the this is really almost on the very northwestern edge of Oromon's territory. Um, no one at all has any idea what is west of Oromon. It's never come up. It's never come up in the story. Oromon's so big, this is the only time they've ever come this far across. No one knows what's west of Oromon. So who knows what, what they've got going on over there. But west of Oromon is completely undiscovered land at this point um, in the entire story. In fact, at no point in the story that I've already that has been written have I addressed what's west of Oromon. I know what's over there, but I've never addressed it. But one day, right? So they're traveling along, and then I have a part to read to you. Again, this is one of those sections that I wrote out and I read to the characters, and I'm going to read it to you the same way they heard it. So if I say, it's been five days since you left the blah, 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 blah. That's because I'm talking to them in this situation. You are the characters. Okay? First, there's some new people, so that's why I've been mentioning that. It has been several days since you left the ogre lands to the north. You're traveling through a mildly wooded area, though not quite the great forest you were searching for. Suddenly, Dandy and Quan burst through the trees before you. Because again, Dandy and Quan, they're always out front. They're scouting. They're way ahead, making sure that uh, their group of heroes don't walk into a trap or into a group of Ormond soldiers having a breakfast somewhere, right? Suddenly, Dandy and Quan burst the tr through the trees before you. Take cover, they cried. Everyone hide. Everyone quickly does their best to hide in the nearby foliage. You can imagine how hard that is for the Minotaurs and the guys wearing plate mail. You sit there in silence for several minutes. You want to ask them what is wrong, but you dare not make a sound. You trust your friends completely. It is then that you begin to feel it. A nervousness, and then a level of concern. You feel your hands begin to tremble, and you begin to sweat. The fear then washes over you like a tidal wave. It takes every bit of self-control you have not to cry out or flee. I'm going to take a quick pause here to say Dandy does not feel any of that. Dandy is immune to fear. Tender trait. 
The sound of great wings flapping is heard as it draws nearer. You cower in place as everything goes dark, the giant shape above you completely blocking the sun. The beast is moving quickly, and though it feels like an eternity, it passes in mere seconds. It is several minutes later before any of you can gather the strength to stand. The sound of wingbeats have long since faded to the west. So, for those of you who've been tracking, might have an idea what that is. Spell. <laughs> so, in case you don't know, uh, if you're not a regular D and D player, I'm going to throw a thing. In many of the different types of D and D creatures, not on every D and D world, but the majority of them, there's something called dragon fear. Uh, just through the nature of their size, what they are, and the magic about them, it literally creates a magical fear that you will feel sometimes at great distance. The more powerful the dragon, the more power it is. And many people, and even in D&D, when a fight against a dragon starts, the very first thing you have to do is to roll just to see whether or not you run away. Um, dragon fear is a serious, serious plus for dragons. Though normally, if you can make it through it, it doesn't affect you much from that point. You've bit your lip and struggled through the hard part, you're good. Although it sometimes can cause negatives, and if something bad happens to the party, someone dies, someone takes a lot of damage, you may have to re-roll. That might be enough to revoke that fear that makes you want to run away. So what they experienced was dragon fear. Uh, but even a magical fear of that nature, Dandy is immune to. So she's hiding... You know, Dandy, Dandy doesn't have what you call fear. She has concern. Dandy worries about her friends. She's worried something bad could happen to her family. That type of worry and concern for others. But that jump, something jumps out and surprises you. Or I heard a shape at night while I'm sleeping. And that pile of clothes looks exactly like an ogre. You know, that doesn't affect Dandy. She's like, oh, wow, that thing looks like an ogre. You know, her, it's more, it's, her fear is replaced by an overwhelming sense of curiosity and wanderlust, which these two things combined with no fear, is what normally leads to a kender having a very short lifespan, and being annoying to most other races. But I, I did want to point out, even magical dragon fear, Dandy is immune to. Okay. They decide to go ahead and camp there for the day. On the off chance the thing comes back, you know, in case it's coming two different directions or circling around, they don't want to get out of the trees because, like I said, it's a sparsely wooded area, and then they'll go through an area that's no woods and then woods. They don't want to be out in the middle of nowhere and have it come back. So they decide they're going to stay there for the rest of the day and the night, not light fires. They have, on occasion, lit small fires in the chest of holding. Uh, with the chest being closed, that's stupid, because that burns up your oxygen. With the chest open, it's not that big of an issue. There have been times when they needed light that they can go down in the chest of holding, leave it open, throw a blanket over it. No light's coming out. People down inside still have some air, whatever, hides the smoke. So there are times that they do that when there needs to be cooking or somebody needs to actually do something that would make a noise. That's a lot of times how they muffle it. Everybody's going down and sharpening their blades or putting on their armor and such, and they're still trying to be sneaky. That is something that they've used to help with that in the past. Keep a thick blanket that they can cover over that, which helps muffle that sound. Um, so a lot of times if they can't cook normally, 
they got they still got a barrel of a couple barrels of pickled fish in there. there. In case of emergency, there's always a barrel of pickled fish in there. And you don't have to cook those. They're delicious. They're pickled. <laughs> After a day, day and a half actually, they said they're that was relatively early day. They stay the whole day and the next night. Uh, which is a good thing to do. They played it cautiously, but there's no sign of whatever dragon that was. Although, they have a fear that they know what dragon that was. Um, maybe some of you remember that a dragon has already been part of this story. And supposedly, this very, very large dragon... Um, oh, hey Jonas. <laughs> Welcome back. You should probably not do that. But, um, yes. So, when the uh, the big dragon, Siric, which is... Remember, they had to go help Balin get the ability to turn back into a dragon. One of the... Tobias and Balin are supposed to come help them if they can find the tower. So, they... Uh, if that is Siric, which would make sense based on the size and the amount of fear that they felt, because they fought dragons before. This was the worst they've ever felt. Um, he was heading west just like they were. But they give it a day and a half and nothing comes back. They see no other signs of Oromon or the dragon, so they continue traveling to the west. Several days later, they're coming over a bit of a hill, and ahead of them, in the distance, is a huge forest. The trees are massive. This is definitely an old forest. Um, very thick, and it seems to go on as far as they can see. And it's slightly hilled. You know what I mean? It's not like completely flat forest. It, there's some. They're just seeing from where they are. They're just seeing treetops. You know what I mean? Going off into the distance in all directions. And again, and based on their map, this is the forest that they were looking for. Um, so, there's that. Right? So, they proceed towards the forest. <clears throat> now, they'd received some warnings for the forest, right? Um, when they'd been told about this, Darren told them, hey, there are creatures in there they're incredibly dangerous. And he was hunted by something, he said, until he got to the tower. Which implies whatever the beast was that was tracking him was also able to travel through these woods as well. Although it did find him before he was ever in here. He never did determine whether or not that thing was trying to kill him or trying to chase him or try to get him there. He never knew. He never saw it again once he found the tower. But he did say that there's powerful things in here that he did see as he was leaving though they left him alone. He didn't like get good looks at him. He just knew they were there kind of thing. Uh, I don't have anything super planned on the 4th. No, Jonas. I'm not sure. At least not yet anyways. Well, maybe. So, as they're making... They're, they're walking their way across this big opening and they're like, we should probably hurry. Right? Because if there is... Like, they don't see a tower in those trees. The trees are massive. They're huge. It could be small tower or it could be really far in there they have no idea but there's a big open plain from the, where they are to get to the trees the last thing they want is some big old dragon to come flying at them so they decide once again hey I need to book it and so they start rushing across these plains 
and it's going pretty well. Halfway across, one of them calls out, followed by a big thwump, a very large thwump. Weapons are immediately in hand, spells are ready to be cast, everyone's prepared for combat. And Seamus is laying flat on his face. He stands up and he's actually got a bit of a bloody nose. I'm like, what? What happened? He's like, I, I tripped. And Mercy rolls her eyes and Artemis is like, let me look at your nose. Come here. Miyasha's like, I got it. Let me see it. And she grabs his nose a little bit too painful and he's like, ow, ow, ow. And she's like, I'm going to heal it. You know, just, she's embarrassed. All right, Jonas, I appreciate you coming by. But it's a little, a little embarrassed that, you know, at this point, kind of her, her boyfriend, right, is uh, being such a baby about it. And he's, he stands up and she gives a quick heel to his nose and he looks down at what he trips on. He re- reaches in and he, he, remember, Seamus is a very large, muscular dude. He pulls kind of hard and it comes up out of the ground. And what he's holding in his hand is a helm, a metal helm. It's in rough condition. It's super, super old. In fact, it's rusted in parts. And I mean, it's good quality metal, probably, but it's been there a long time. Everybody's like, it's a helm in the middle of the field. Start looking around, kicking dirt. The grass is not that high, just maybe about knee deep. But they're kicking around, and sure enough, every few feet, they start looking around, and sure enough, they find pieces of broken weapon, armor, even some bones. (laughs) Yes, Ashley. (laughs) And, uh... Of course, they start discussing why would this be here? Pieces of everything. And again, everything looks super old. None of it's usable. You know what I mean? It's probably been sitting there for a long, long time. And they remember back to one of the stories they heard from the very, very first farmer that they came across in Oromon when they asked about the tower. And he said, ah, it's a fable, but he he said there was a story that a thousand years ago, uh, the current emperor's ancestor... Uh, went and tried to use the tower for his own means, um, basically to try to t- make the gods work for him. And for his ignorance, the gods unleashed a great beast that eliminated his entire army. Um, with what they're seeing here, there was clearly some type of major battle fought here at one point. Whether or not that's the reason or not, there's definitely a ton of people died on this field before the woods that they're heading to. Thank you. Buffy? Okay, she may be upstairs. Okay, so seeing this, they're like, okay, well, if that's true, then probably the forest we're looking for. They start making their way across again. Uh, Let me see here. Yes, so as soon as they get to the forest, it's, it's a solid line of forest. You know, you get to a forest, sometimes there's trees and a little bit of brush, and it gets thicker the further you go. It's a wall of forest. Almost a merged world's wall. You know, kind of like you'd expect when a thing was cut, but it still looks natural. It doesn't look like that. It looks a lot more like the forest itself has come to a certain point and refused to grow any further. That's the best way I have to describe it. It's like the forest said, nope, we are stopping right here. We're not going one more foot that direction. Once they step into the woods, it's, again, thick. They're struggling through. 
you know, especially some of the larger ones, Minotaurs, snagging their horns on stuff. Um, there's thick underbrush, and there's not, not 100% of it. They'll come through areas which are clearer than others. But they start making their way into the forest. And the forest is, again, very high and thick, which means it's mighty dark in there. Not pitch black. They can still see somewhat, but it's very shadowy. It's very spooky. They're very spooked. And sure enough, as soon as they enter the woods, there's a sense of something's watching. Something's not happy that they're there. And the further in they go, the more they all feel that way. Even Dandy feels that. That's not a fear. That's just, you can sense something's watching. There's no signs of any type of animal. They hear birds. Occasionally they'll hear water. They'll find a small brook. It's like a forest. But they don't really see any deer or anything running around. Maybe a bunny here and there. So I don't want to say it's devoid of animal life, but it definitely doesn't appear lush with animal life. Fortunately, they have plenty of supplies and two barrels of pickled fish. So moving forward shouldn't be too much of an issue if supplies are low. And they make a conscious decision that if this is in fact the woods surrounding the tower blessed by the gods, maybe we shouldn't be in here killing any of the animals. Uh, because there is a god of nature, uh, and they decide, you know, maybe these aren't the animals we should be snacking on. Even though nature allows that, they have enough supplies that they don't have to. So they make a point of not doing any hunting or fishing while they're here. Uh, they will pull berries or fruit and such from trees, come across some apples kind of thing. They'll, they'll do that. Um, but they're, they, don't, they don't take any lives while they're here purposely. Other than mosquitoes, because screw mosquitoes. In the real world or in a fake world, screw mosquitoes. Sorry. Moment of hatred for mosquitoes. Let's all hate them together. So, <laughs> it they travel. Let's see here, They travel through the woods for two days, um, without any issues. Um, again, it's hard to get directions. Right? It's so dark and shaded most of the time that they don't see the sun. You know. Uh, several of them have direction sense, which again is a second edition ability that you can have to have a, a chance of knowing your, the direction you're traveling at any time based on other stuff, you know, moss on trees and things like that. And they proceed on. They do set, they do light little small fires and clearings when they camp for the night, cooking their own food or warming water they found for stew or soup using their own supplies, whatever. Again, there's like 18 or 20 of them there, right? There's a bunch of people. It takes a lot of food. Uh, everybody hates mosquitoes. Exactly. Exactly. Everyone hates mosquitoes. Wise man. <laughs> so, they travel for two days. It is late in the afternoon of the third day when they finally run into an issue. It's almost like it just appeared. It's the only thing they can assume. Something that large just suddenly being there before them. There were no sounds of it moving. There were no footsteps. There were no growls. But suddenly, moving forward, Dandy and Quan stop. They're not that far ahead at this point. They're just a little bit ahead. They, they just stop for a break and are traveling on. So everyone else is in view. And Dandy and Quan stop suddenly, everybody else stops suddenly, because even they can see 
the thirteen-foot creature standing before them in the woods. It's hard to describe the beast in terms that most people would understand, since there's no living creature like it. Large and standing on four feet, even though its front legs appear to be almost twice as long as the back. Horns bent and curved, almost like lightning bolts. Large fangs, both up and down in its mouth. Fur covering the majority of its body, although there appears to be a patch on the chest which is kind of empty. And on its front hands, which are larger than they look like they should be for those arms, even though they're long arms, are just huge talons. And the eyes glow with a red light. Like just, not like a reflective, like they're glowing with some type of energy. This is not a prime material creature. Explain what that means. The prime material plane is the plane that we live on. It's the plane that Dungeons and Dragons characters live on. It is our reality. The outer planes are where the gods and the angels and the demons, they all live in the different outer planes, which heroes can travel through. These things happen. Um, there's even some D&D uh, storylines and settings that take place in the outer planes. I'm a big fan of the outer planes. I've studied a lot about them. I've rarely had the opportunity to get to use them. This creature is not from the prime material plane. Whether it is a demon or not, it's hard to tell. It definitely does not look angelic, but even in the outer planes, looks can be deceiving. Everyone stops. Dandy's not afraid. She's curious, but she's concerned something could happen to her friends. That's always what keeps Dandy going. If I don't want to move, because if I do something wrong, it might hurt everybody. The creature slowly moves forward. Again, as it moves forward and its arms move, it's, it's almost like, imagine if something was walking on its arms and its knees. You know what I mean? Like the back legs are that short, but yet it still seems to be moving very fluidly. Like it's not stumping or slow, it's just moving very smoothly with a feeling like this thing could probably go pretty fast if it needs to. And every time its hands hit the ground, the claws just dig into the dirt and it's almost like it's pulling itself forward and that the front arms are really the main means of propulsions, not the back legs. It's coming very slowly closer towards Dandy and Quan. It's not saying anything, but it does emit a bit of a low growl. Now, one of the other things they heard about this forest and the tower is that not everyone can find the tower. Early on in this adventure, one of our members good friend Paul. Thank you, Flavin, for the sub. Asked a very good question. He asked a Lord of the Rings kind of question. Why didn't Draven just go there and stop it? Draven can probably take the Emperor, and even if he couldn't, he could put him in the chest of holding and run days at a time, get there way faster than everyone else. Why did everybody have to go? And I touched on this one point earlier. 
that only those chosen can find the tower. It's important. And chosen, as defined, are those who have been touched. I've talked about this many times in this story, and some of you know this, some of you don't, but in my Dungeons & Dragons campaign setting, in Merged Worlds, the way this works, is when a soul first comes into creation, in that tiny microsecond when new life is first created, sometimes a god will sense that soul's creation and be pulled to it. And the god can see it, and he has a choice. That god, he, she, whatever, can choose to reach out and touch that soul. Giving that soul the opportunity to unlock its full potential. Now, the God's drawn to it. Doesn't mean this is going to be a good thing for the God. It could be a bad thing. They may choose not to touch the soul. But by touching the soul, metaphorically, they're not actually poking it, but you're touching it, they unlock that soul's capability to reach its full potential. That's what Dungeons and Dragons characters are. These are people who grew up, did things, so on, and they go out and become adventurers. They fight the bad guys or the good guys. They, they, they fight the dragons. They save the world because they have the potential for that type of thing. They weren't just the type of person to grow up and stay a farmer or a lumber, or, you know, woodsman, whatever the case may be. And to be touched is a rare thing. All four of our main characters are touched. Draven is not. And that's an important thing. Draven's a very powerful dude. He's half demon. Half living vampire. It's an interesting combo. But he was not touched. Draven could not find the tower. Majority of the people in this party are not touched. But our four main heroes are. And I can tell you, a couple of these other people are as well. So I wanted to answer why the birds didn't just fly Gandalf and they chucked the ring in the fire. Okay, I'm, just, I'm saying this is why it wasn't one of those situations. There was a reason why Draven couldn't do it. Or anyone else. The beast moves up and Mercy is starting to go for her weapons and such and Darsh is ready to go and Dandy's like, chill, chill. It eats my head off, then do that, but not till. Kind of a thing. She doesn't say that over, but she's giving them. And the creature comes up and it leans down. Now, Dandy would easily fit inside this thing's mouth. Easily. Put her in the cheek, chew her like bubblegum. Like, that's how big the head and the size of this thing is. And it's kind of towering over. And Quan's standing there like, Quan's a hero. Quan is a good dude. Quan is like, I'm going to die. There is nothing I'm going to be able to do against this. Quan's literally at that point like, he's like, there's no way. <laughs> Dragons, sure. This thing, scarier. And Dandy steps forward. I'm going to point that out. She chose that. She steps forward. And the thing leans down and gets right in front of her face and sniffs one, like big inhale. It's got big now. It's almost when her hair kind of comes up a little bit and she's like, it makes a weird face like, well, that's not cool. Exactly, exactly. And Dandy reaches up and pokes it on its nose 
and goes boop. Kid you not, the kender booped this thing's nose. In that moment, Dandy decided that this demonic outer planar creature was a puppy who needed his nose booped. Thing's head comes back in just a moment in surprise. And then its mouth opens and it bares its teeth. And the skin starts to come back. And it shows not one but two rows of huge fangs in its mouth. And it leans in and licks right across her face. Now I want you to imagine the way I explain this to them. As its tongue rolls away, Dandy's sitting there with this look on her face of her eyes half open like... And her face has just got drool dripping off of it. And the front of her hair is sticking up kind of the side because it licked up there. And the slime of its tongue is kind of sitting on an angle. And she's like, ew. And it snorts. And then it turns and walks off into the trees. And from that point moving forward, no longer did they feel like they were being watched in the woods. they have been allowed to pass. I'm just saying, you're being attacked by a dog, try to poop its nose. You don't know what's going to happen. I'm just kidding. Don't poop a dog's nose. Please do not take that advice. Pooping. It's the way it should be. So they continue to travel on. Another three days go by. And at this point, they're feeling Okay. Nothing's really watching anymore. That nervousness isn't there. The woods now start to seem more alive. They're starting to see more animals. They still choose not to eat any. But it's starting to feel more like a regular woods. And they come across water. It's better. Perfectly clean water. It doesn't need boiled. That's great. Awesome. They find a lot of fruits, apples, and things in, in, the, in the woods. All sorts of trees and fruit bushes and such that normally wouldn't grow in the same area they find next to each other. So the fruits and such are, are plentiful. <clears throat> Did they have the option of following the thing? They always have the option of following the thing. I would never tell them they couldn't. They didn't, but that'd have been fun. I would never tell a character they can't do something unless it's physically impossible. I'm going to walk through the wall like a ghost. No, you are not. <laughs> you are not going to do that. <laughs> you know, I'm going to jump across this ravine and punch the dragon. It's a hundred yards across. No, you are not. You know, but yeah, if they're like I want to follow the thing. Good luck. See what happens. I'll figure it out. I didn't have it planned, but I'd figure it out. Hey, Bubby. As I mentioned, they traveled for three more days. And about. Early afternoon, one, two o'clock-ish. On the third day, the trees stop. And before them is a large valley. Just very gently bowl-shaped. And it unnervingly reminds them of the Valley of Sacrifice, where they fought Nilat Firemoon. Remember that way back in the day, where the Flying Citadel? Remember the size of the thing? I believe I said 13 feet. It was like 13 or 14 feet. I remember it was double digits and it was taller than Darsh. 
um, considerably taller than Darsh. Because I think Darsh is nine feet, if I remember correctly. With horns. Yes, it was very large. And I created it. I didn't pull it out of a DM thing. That was just a me thing. Um, I had some other ones that never popped up, but I, I had a few. Depending on what they did or which direction they chose, there were different ones that could pop up. No, I'm not going to tell you about them, because I'm saving them for later. <laughs> um, so yes, they see the valley, and in the center of it stands the tower. And it is exactly as Darren described it would be. Vividly so. They're, the mental image they had from his stories are exactly what they see before them. The valley itself, we're talking like one and a half football fields, uh, or soccer fields, for those of you we're in America, football for out of America. You, you all know what I mean. It's a big area. But roundish. Almost perfectly roundish. With the tower in the center. No trees grow in this valley. The grass is uniform. Always about knee deep. And, no, I'm just kidding. It's not that very fine. It's almost like someone went through recently and cut the grass. It's very nice in there. As soon as they get to the edge of this valley, <clears throat> they start to feel that sense of peace. They start to feel just the tiniest bit of, ah, we made it. And maybe it's just because they're there. Maybe it's the magic of the valley and the tower. It's hard for them to know standing here at the woods looking down at it. But our heroes came here for a reason. And so they do not go walking into that valley. Instead, they prepare for battle. They get their chest of holding out. They prepare themselves. They get their weapons and their armor on. Because, you know, they're not all walking around in plate mail all the time. Weston the Paladin is. But most other people are not. <clears throat> Excuse me. Strapping on. Darsh isn't always carrying around his dragon scale shield. It's heavy. You're traveling eight miles. It's in the chest of holding in case he needs it. This is they're preparing themselves. It's at this time as everybody's going in, getting their stuff, pulling it out, people are handing it up, that Lucas climbs out with a large bag that he'd put in there before they left. One that sounds like metal clanking. And he walks to Artemis and asks if he can speak to her for a moment in private. And she's like, Of course. The two elves aren't far away. You know, the two elf uh, uh, um, of time, Templars of time, that have been hanging out with them. They nod. They're with Lucas. He's good. They step a little ways into the. No one's gone into the valley yet. They're still in the trees. And he's like, "I have to prepare for this battle now." And she's like. Yeah, yeah, we all do. I mean, we're doing that right now. He's like, no, you don't understand. What we're walking into at this point is most likely the most dangerous thing you've ever done. <laughs> I say that because Lucas is constantly... Lucas is only in dangerous situations because of Artemis going there. She always feels a little bad for that. He's like, and in this situation, there's a chance that we may not make that and we may not win. So I have to prepare to do everything I can to help you. And I need you to understand exactly what that means. And Artemis is like, okay. I'm, I'm at this point, the young lady playing Artemis, very, very nervous. 
Look, it says, long before I came to the temple, before I was a Templar of our god Tavian of, of healing, in my youth I lived a very different life. A life that I'm very ashamed of. And after many years of living that life, I realized what I had been, what I had done. And I was horrified. And so I put down the weapons and the armor that I wore and swore to never touch them again. And gave up who I was and became you know, and begged for forgiveness and acceptance. And I was accepted by Tavian, and I became a Templar. But I left those things of who I was behind. Though I've always kept them near, so they didn't fall into the hands of someone else. What we're going to walk into now is the only time I've, I've felt enough that I need to be who I was to make this work. And I hope that regardless of what happens today, you'll forgive me. And he just kind of leans in and gives her a little kiss on the forehead and then walks off into the woods with his big old bag. Artemis has no idea what's about to happen and I have just scared the hell out of both of my D&D players. All the party's like, what is that? Lucas stands a distance away in the woods, far from where everyone else can see. And out of the bag, he takes out the armor that he wore for many, many years and begins putting it on. As he does, it feels familiar. Again, it was a part of him for a very long time. And finally, when that armor is on, he, he pulls the last thing out of the bag, which is a sword in a black sheath a sheath as black as the armor that he's wearing. He breathes deeply and with a sigh, he pulls the sword out, sets it in the ground, and closes his eyes. Ah, Lucas, my child, how I've missed you so. I've missed you and your sword. It has been far too long. I told you, one day you'd be back. I knew you'd return to me. You never can leave forever. Hearing the voice of a goddess in his head is enough to drive almost any man mad, especially when it is the goddess of death. My lady, says Lucas. I swore I would never come back to you, and I would never again ask you of your gifts. But I was wrong, and here I am once again asking you to grant me the blessings, to get, grant me the gifts to do what needs to be done today. There's a small chuckle in his mind. Ah, my child, you all come home in the end. You know what this means, don't you? I do. 
this will be the last time. I understand. And you're willing to pay the price? For her I am. Then yes, my child. Go forth with my blessing. It's time for you to dance once again. As Lucas returns to the party in his black-as-night armor, and even though he hasn't taken it out of that bag in over 30 years, as clean and glisteningly dark as it always has been, Artemis gasps at the symbols of death upon them. And she walks up to him and she's like, Lucas, what have you done? And he smiles at her and speaks in a slightly haunting voice. Don't fear, my child. I've done what is best. I will keep you safe. The party prepares themselves and they are ready. And they begin to descend into the valley, across towards the tower, not knowing quite what they will find. They get about halfway across that valley, when all of a sudden, about that time, the doors of the tower before them fly open. And Oromanian elites come pouring out. There has to be 80 to 100 of them coming out of the doors and from around behind the tower. Mixed with them clerics of Pandora, at least 8 to 10. And the last to walk from the tower is the emperor himself, Marcus Dawnbringer. Welcome, my friends, says Marcus. It has been far too long. Once again, you have not failed to disappoint me. I am honored you would go through so much just to see me win. Remember, he's a very smarmy, arrogant guy. You've traveled far. I see you've gathered your best warriors, he says dubiously. But you're already too late. The ritual has already begun. And you will never stop it in time. Before the night is done, my goddess will once again walk the land and the world will quake before her. Because you are too powerful to stop us. As he says that, rising from the trees and from behind the tower, a massive black-winged body rises up into the air, landing behind the tower. You know, kind of like a wrapped around it, like only a dragon could. This big black dragon wrapped around this tower, looking down. 
Uh, my notes here say, Cyric will land on the tower. Damn, that's a big dragon. Because again, I like the... Uh, oh, you're... Oh, sorry, you're not powerful enough to stop us. Or, sorry, we're... We're too powerful for you to stop us. If I said that wrong, I apologize. It's supposed to be, we're too powerful for you to stop us. I said that backwards. I apologize. Thank you for pointing that out, Turtle. That would have sounded really weird if I didn't clarify that. <laughs> Turtle saving my day. I appreciate you having my back, babe. No, it's like, <laughs> we're too powerful for you to stop us. He thanks them. I appreciate you delivering yourself to me. You, what few of you may live, will be a wonderful gift to my goddess. But I can assure you this. Today, in this valley, your story is going to end. There's nothing you can do to stop it. Mercy steps forward with her own little forceful confident way and she goes maybe we can't but maybe we're not alone either she holds up her hand and in her hand the emperor can see a small hourglass and mercy squeezes and it shatters in her hand as he does the sand inside of it flies out falls from her hand and immediately begins to swirl in the air Marx's eyes narrow just a bit. The sand becomes a dark opening, a void, a portal, if you will. And then two figures step through. Balin, the dragon in human form once again. Oh, I'm sorry. The hourglass shares me. Oh, yeah. See, two figures step through. Tobias is glowing with a white-blue light magical energy crackles around him in his robes. In his hand he holds the staff of winter. Beside him is Balin, a look of anger on his face. For the first time the Emperor has a genuine look of concern. Greetings, Dawnbringer, Tobias whispers, his voice carrying across the entire valley. I've come to keep my promise. I've come for you. A scream fills the air as Balin sees the great black dragon above him. Leaping into the air himself, his body shifts and grows into his dragon form. The great black roared out as well, seeing this, and also takes to the air. The emperor calls out a single command, and his troops begin to charge forward. So... Thanks for coming to the... I'm just kidding. I'm not going to stop there. <laughs> I told, told my wife, I'm like, I'm going to say, thanks for coming. We'll finish this next week. But no. <laughs> I just spilled drink on my glasses. Okay. This battle, this whole section we're about to jump into now, I kind of viewed it as a uh, traditional multi-step boss fight. This is obviously a big deal. I've been building up this for a while. beginning it's mostly general melee right Armenian so elites come rushing forward our heroes go rushing forward um, you know very like two armies in the field right the clerics are in the back on their side charging casting spells 
On our side, we've got Artemis in the back throwing heels, as well as um, Edwin, Magnus, and Tobias whipping their spells out. And that's really what evens this up. That's always been Serenity's saving grace in all of the battles and wars they've had against Oromon is that Oromon does not have mages. They are against mages and that type of magic. They are clerical magic only. And so they don't have anything to completely equally match what the wizards bring with them. Not to say that their cleric magic isn't strong and as effective. It is. But they don't have fireballs and lightning bolts and the stuff that your traditional mages have access to. Especially someone as strong as Tobias. So while they're outnumbered almost five or six to one, the mages and the fact that our heroes are pretty buff, <laughs> wearing very good gear, uh, <laughs> are able to kind of even that out. And I say that because it is relatively even when this happens. The cleric spells of Pandora are effective and are having a, a difficulties, causing difficulties for the heroes. But in this general melee, certain specific things kind of take precedent. Um, it was a lot of, for us, rolling, fighting against different people. The Emperor did not enter in here. Mercy and the rest of them obviously want to get to him. He's just kind of standing in the door of the tower, laughing and watching his people fight for him, while the two dragons are fighting above. But there's still a whole army of people in front of them they got to get through. So there's a lot of basic combat. Several things happened in this section that were of note um, that I mentioned specifically. Um, let's see here. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Keep going. So Nathalian's arrows, also incredibly important. There are some ranged, even some of the elites have their throwing weapons, but nothing with the range of arrows. So Nathalian in the back with the mages, basically, and, and Artemis uh, and, and Miasha, because there's two healing clerics there, are just popping arrows left and right. And that was also really, really helpful. Although he did try to shoot the Emperor a couple times, and they kind of bounce off a, sh a magical shield in front of him. The Emperor laughs a couple times. So he's like, okay, I'll kill your friend. <laughs> and, and does. Um, Magnus has a mean fireball. I said he doesn't have invisibility, but that man is a pyro. And I mean that. As a mage specifically, fire is his kind of his thing. Uh, so a lot of his spells have always been fire-based. So he's got fireballs, and he's just tossing them at the back end, past his allies, trying to hit the clerics. He, everybody realizes very quickly, because everybody takes a pot shot at the Emperor one way, nothing gets through. So they're pot shotting now at the clerics at the back. The mages are evening that out. Um, the minotaurs themselves are a force to be reckoned with. Um, because with Darsh and Garrig are on the outside, and Jorn, who's a little bit smaller on the middle, the three of them just marching through people, just mowing. Because there's no... The elites are skilled, and I don't want to play that off like they're not. They're not just marching through minions' ranks of infantry. The elites are elites for a reason. They, they can fight back with skill, um, but there's no one there close to the size of Darsh. So the Minotaurs, when they're just... They're willing to take a hit to deal a hit, you know? Not everybody's willing to do that. Like, we stab the Minotaur, and they're just like, ha, 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 and hits him with, headbutts him and pulls the sword out of himself. It's that kind of thing where you stab a Minotaur, and he's like, ah, war wound. <laughs> I mean, that's just kind of how that works. Um, uh, Seamus and Miasha make a really good team. It's the first, you know, they've had a little bit of this, but in this battle, they really, really team up well. Miasha's casting what spells she has, healing. Seamus has taken... It, because of the pre-planning. That was one of the things that Mercy 
put on him. It's like, you keep her safe. Alright? You fight, squish things, you are the line... They're going to come after the healers, because that's true. They do try to get through to the clerics. They're like, your job is to protect her. I've got Lucas, okay? And these two elves, who I want to mention are more skilled than the elites. We've already seen that previously when they attacked the temple. The, the, the elves are like what we called Cuisinarts back when we played. It's like you're just walking into a flurry of blades. But even what they're doing doesn't begin to compare with the amount of damage that Lucas is doing. Lucas is literally dancing. As he's moving across the field, he's moving almost with a fluidity that doesn't seem natural. And hes it's a block slash... Every move he makes is setting up the next move. And he is a line of death. As he is marching, as anything that comes close to Artemis, as he and the Artemis and the, our heroes are trying to push towards this temple... Anything that gets between Ar- or gets past anybody or gets close to, to Lucas doesn't last a single round. Lucas is literally just taking every life before him. And he's doing it expertly. So again, while this is going on, the dragons are fighting above. This also causes problems. Dragons have breath weapons. So occasionally in the middle of a fight, I roll the dice... Somebody gets hit with a glob of acid or a glob of ice or whatever the bre- fire. These things are going on. Black dragons have acid type things. It's acid from Cyric. But every so often, I would roll and see if anybody gets hit on both sides. Occasionally, an Oromanian would get a glob of acid on them. Occasionally, one of the good guys would get a glob of acid on them. The fire stuff was, was not as bad, but the acid stuff dripped down. So that was something that a lot of people had to deal with as well. And the he- this is really keeping the healers on their toes, because the healers are having to constantly be watching for somebody getting hit with that and having to heal it quickly before it like, eats away their heads and such. Because it's very powerful acid. Cyric is a massive dragon. He's I wouldn't say he's a great worm, but he's close. If that means anything, if you don't know what that means, talk to me in Discord and I'll explain that in some more detail. So these things are going on, and and the fight is happening. And as this battle is raging on, people are taking wounds. People are getting hurt. Um, In some situations, relatively uh, badly. Um, and the healers are having to literally keep people alive in situations. Uh, if I remember, Jorn loses a finger in the middle of this first round. Uh, something happens where he, he punches something and he pulls his hand back. Another one slices at him and it cuts through his gauntlet. He's wearing a gauntlet, but it manages to cut through. And it cleaves the finger half off. And he kills the guy and he looks at it and he just pulls the rest off and goes back. Because it's just hanging there by skin at that point. And he just pulls the rest off and then he gets angry and he goes attacking again. Which, you know, at that point, blood rage. He's just going in, going to town. But yeah, he lost a finger in the middle of that. I remember that specifically. Um, but several people go down and have to be healed. But no one's quite dead yet. Not saying they will. Not saying they won't. Just saying. No one dies in this first phase. Although there are a decent amount of injuries and a good third of the healing spells get used up here. Now that's key. A third of the healing spells get used up here. That's something they have an only limited supply. Garrick has a few little ones. And Weston the Paladin has a couple. But other than Miasha 
and Artemis, that's their main heals at this point. So they have all the protection that's needed. I want to say this went on for 8 to 10 rounds. Like, I wanted it to last a while. And they're just going through doing their stuff. Um, And after it was like, I want to say it was 10 rounds of combat. um, I paused to read the next section. Here we are. Let's see here. A loud scream from above catches everyone's attention, momentarily stopping the battle. A loud scream. Looking up, you see two giant forms crashing towards you. Self-preservation takes over, and everyone on both sides of the conflict flee in all directions. Luckily, you and your allies are well clear of the area before Balin crashes into the ground, crushing a small group of Ormanians. Siric lands nearby, and while injured, the Great Black was clearly the victor of the skirmish. Balin is badly injured. One of his wings appear broken. Great sections of his scales have been burned away by the Black's acidic breath weapon. You were a fool to even try, said Siric. And with a laugh, he begins to breathe in deeply, preparing to finish his foe. His head moves forward as his great maw opens, but suddenly before him stood Tobias, the Staff of Winter held before him. As the acid begins to release from the dragon's mouth, a bright blue beam of arctic cold fires from the staff, striking Siric in the open mouth back into his throat. The great black yanks back his head in pain, and while it appears he's screaming in rage, No sound issues forth. Tobias runs towards you and your allies, calling out, His breath weapon and spells are no more. You must move against him now if you're to have any chance. He's effectively frozen the inside of his throat, nullifying his breath weapon and his spells. He's still a giant black dragon, with claws the size of half of the party. This is big as mercy. This one's a big... I'm saying. He's still scary. But those two things were negated. Seeing their chance, they rush in to fight the dragon. The remaining Oromon soldiers also are rushing in to help fight them. So they're doing a double melee at this point. They're having to fight Oromon, the ones that are left. And they've taken a big dent out of that. And Balin landed on about ten, which was helpful. He did squish 10. 9 or 10, if I remember. But they're rushing in to fight this on two fronts. We now have to fight the dragon, and we have to fight the elites. Yes. That's what the Staff of Winter is for. And this is what's important. He said that we needed to have any chance of success. We need these three artifacts. Couldn't tell them why or how, but he knew they were needed. These three artifacts would give them the chance that they need. This was the first one that was used. The Staff of Winter negated that of Siric, giving them a chance at taking him out. Because his spells alone could have wiped the party. And probably would have had Balin not taken the attention off of them at the very beginning. Now, on Darsh's back, he has his quiver of holding. 
which has javelins and things in it, but it has one other thing. It's the bone lance. You remember the bone lance they, he told Darsh to hang on to, that it would be needed and be best in his hands at this time. So Darsh still had the bone lance. And Darsh immediately is like, well, I know why I've got a bone lance. And they start. he starts rushing in to fight. They all do, start charging in. But as she's about to rush forward, Tobias steps in front of Mercy and stops her. She looks at him, she's like, what? And he points. And when she turns, she sees the Emperor running back inside of the, of the tower. You must come with me now. If we have any, if we are going to defeat him, we have to do it now. Artemis looks at her friends and minions out there fighting. And some of them hear this, right? They're like, "What?" He looks at, and she, and she goes, and she points, and she goes, "Weston and Artemis must come with us." Now, Weston, the paladin, if you remember, was given the Hammer of Truth, the third artifact. And Artemis is Artemis. But Artemis is also their best healer. And he's saying, you have to leave these people out here with Miyasha as their only healer. A little bit of Garrick. And you have to come with me now. Mercy's torn. She doesn't want to leave her people. But at the same time, they all came here with the intention of stopping that from happening in the tower. And if she can't get that doesn't get done, all of this was for nothing. And Darsh just yells, Go! And then turns and runs back, runs in to fight the dragon. Lucas and the two elves are beside Artemis. They're like, if you're going that way, we're going that way. That's how this works. So they start to move towards as this fighting is beginning starting to attack Dandy, Darsh and most of the minions are now fighting the dragon and the rest of the elites while the others head towards the tower as they are fighting the dragon Seamus stops and grabs Quan and pulls him backwards and pushes him a bit. And Quan looks and he goes, go with her. And Quan looks at his big friend and, and Seamus just smiles. He goes, you're, you're standing for the rest of us. Go with her. Quan nods and turns and runs after. Seamus enters into combat with everyone else. Oramon again is beginning to regroup and coming at them and they half a chunk of them go towards messing with the dragon and the heroes the other half sees Mercy and friends running towards the tower and a chunk of them split off to stop them but in this group you have Tobias the two elves and Lucas and Mercy and Artemis and Quan are no slouches but Lucas is in front and he's literally wiping the floor. Every time his hand moves, a body falls. They reach the tower and enter it, and immediately they're washed over with that peacefulness. 
How many possible death? There are a bunch. I can talk to you about them later. Hit me up on Discord. We'll talk about them. There's a lot of cool ones. Lightning is one of my favorites. Um, but they reach the tower, and as soon as they step inside, they feel that peacefulness that wash over them. They're standing on holy ground at this point, regardless of the god that you worship. This is neutral, holy ground for all gods. Anyone stepping inside is going to feel that way. There's a little fountain in the middle still running with water. Darren spoke of back in the day. They see the stairs going up. The emperor's already up there somewhere. There's no sign of him. Took him a few minutes to fight their way over here. Tobias goes, we must go up. And begins running up the stairs. And Weston and he, again, chunk of people, Weston and everyone. Artemis turns and starts to walk, and she feels a hand on her shoulder, and she stops, and Lucas is standing there. And he says, I'm not going with you. She goes, what do you mean? we got to go stop the emperor. Let's go. He looks at her, and he has a big smile on his face. And this is from a guy whose eyes are starting to glow a little bit, and there's blood splattered all over him. You can imagine this. A little bit of a smile, and he goes... If they come in the tower after you, there's no way you're going to be able to fight them on both sides. The front and the back. He says, the elves and I will stay here and we'll hold the door. We're going to hold the line. We won't let them in. You go upstairs, you help Mercy, and you get this done. He says, this... Uh, why is the secret turned evil? <laughs> gotcha. Um... Lucas steps up and puts his hand on her shoulders and says, this is how I can best protect you. I wish you very well. I hope you succeed and you get home. And if I should never see you again in this life, please know that I love you as the daughter I never had. And he again leans in and gives her a little kiss on the forehead. Artemis, of course, is crying, because Artemis cries all the time. Artemis is a very cryy character, which I'm okay with. I'm just saying it's one of it's one of her features. And she jumps up and gives him a big hug and a kiss in the cheek, and then turning, runs up the stairs. As she begins running up the stairs, she hear she hears Lucas speak to the elves, Come, my friends, let us dance with destiny. So half of them are in the tower, half of them are not. By the way, this stream may run a little long tonight. 15 to 30 minutes at most. Maybe. I'm not sure. <laughs> I want to get, I want to finish this today. I want to leave it on, a, on an ending like that. Um, so it was at this point that we dealt with the dragon fight first. What happens outside the tower is dealt with before we deal with what happens inside the tower. But it's important to remember that those two things are happening at the same time. So it's not like they beat the dragon and then they can rush in and help. These two things are going at the same time. <clears throat> the dragon's fight took a while. It did. Plus, with the Oromanians that they were having to fight. Although, more of the Oromanians went towards the tower than came at the dragon. Um, but, that was an issue. Uh, even with no spells or breath weapon, he's still a massive and dangerous uh, dragon. Multiple rounds of combat happened. While this is going on, Balin converts back to his human form. Um, and sure enough, one of his arms is bent on like a weird, weird angle. Like, his arm's just shattered. 
and he's able to kind of limp a little bit, and his skin's all burned away at point. You can see part of his jaw. Like, he's a mess. And he's able to kind of crawl himself back out of combat so he doesn't get, you know, squooshed. Um, but everyone jumps in in the fighting. So, while this is going on, I will say right out of the bat, Dandy's backstab ability, not going to help her with a dragon. I mean, that's, that's just how that works. Technically, in the book, some people say they can. There's no way in the world I'm going to let somebody backstab a dragon. Unless you've got a magical weapon that can cut through dragon scales easier than anything else, you're just hitting dragon scales with a dagger. You're not backstabbing a dragon. I'm not going to let that happen. Again, unless there's a reason to justify it. Some people have magical weapons that would help. If a rogue gets one of those, by all means. But on a regular Tuesday, you're not going to backstab a dragon. So the fight is going on, and while this is happening, right, we've still got Edwin and Magnus outside. We've still got two mages. They're dealing with a large amount of the remaining Oromon elites. They're firing at them and the few clerics that are still out there. Uh, keeping them very much at bay, so only a few are able to enter into melee once so often. And those ones are dealt with by some of Mercy's knights and such that are there. Uh, Seamus, Lars... Wade, she's got three of them there because Quan's the fourth one and he's upstairs. But those three of them are there, plus we've got everybody else, right? We got all the Minotaurs are here, Dandy's here, right? There's a chunk of people here. Miasha, got a cleric, the two mages. So there's still a, a big chunk of them, and the Minotaurs do damage. It's regular Tuesday when you need to fight a dragon. Man, don't judge my Tuesdays. <laughs> Actually, it's more Thursdays now, right? So, this is going on. They're fighting several rounds. And the dragon immediately deals damage, right? You can't get behind him. His tail is just too dangerous. It's a big tail. It will squish you. So, they're staying mostly in front and sides. And if you think of it as a video game fight, right? Very often, it's the minotaurs that are pulling aggro. It's the best way for me to explain it. If you've ever played a video game like a... World of Warcraft or something out of here. Darsh very quickly becomes this thing's biggest concern. Because Darsh, per round, does double the damage anybody else standing there. Maybe not the mages, but they're a little bit... Most of their spells are not going to the dragon right now. So Darsh is dealing a chunk of damage with the other two minotaurs on his, on his sides at this point. Even Jorn Fingernubs. And they're just going to town on this dragon. Dandy has magical daggers. And while they don't do a ton of damage against a dragon per se, they will do some damage, and she uses those when she can. She's very often quick enough to dodge out of the way of a lot of the dragons. Even though he's big, he's not as fast as somebody as, like Dandy. Um, Nathalian is shooting at eyes. Uh, so are the so uh, the brothers are still also sh switching between the dragon and Nathalian. The dragon and the uh, the Oromanians helping the mages out as well, trying to pop people down. And the arrows really help. Uh, so majority of the Oromans are uh, elites are dealt with by this point. Uh, they fall relatively quickly to primarily Magnus and Nathalian. Edwin and the Owens brothers help. But Magnus and Nathalian take out a bunch of them. So while this fight is going on, there are a couple things that I'm doing on purpose. Something that is there if it's caught. 
And I can't tell you how happy I was that Dandy caught it. Every time I explain the attacks, the dragon tries to bite. Or the dragon tries to bite and, st- and grab with its right hand. And the next time it'll grab with its right hand, then it'll bite. And so it's a bite, a claw attack, bite, claw attack, over and over again. This goes on for probably six or eight rounds. Miyasha's starting to get in trouble because some of her spells are starting to lower down. She doesn't have a lot of the big ones left. She's got a bunch of the littles. They don't do as much per round. It's hard to heal a big wound with, a, with one little healing spell around. Per round. And this is going on and on. And it was Dandy, partially Dandy, partially the young lady who plays Dandy, in the minute goes, hold on a second, let me think of something. She says that. I was always a running gag in our group. She was like, okay, everybody, let's think. It's like, thank you for announcing what we should do. And it just became a running gag. Everybody, let's think. That was her way of, pause, give me a minute. I'm halfway there. And so finally, she says to me, she goes, the dragon's bitten people. Yes. The dragon's clawed people. Yes. Has he ever clawed with both hands at once? I said, no. He's only clawed with the right hand. And he's done a bite attack and a squoosh attack with his right hand. She goes, has he tried to attack with his left hand at all? And I said, no. Dandy says, okay, while they're fighting, I want to try to get under the dragon. I'm like, there's a chance he will squoosh you. She's like, I understand. I'm going to try to get under the dragon. I'm like, yeah, make your rolls. Sure enough, she runs under the dragon and she doesn't attack. She looks around. She runs in and runs back out again and is able to tell Darsh that there's a large burn mark from Balin's breath weapon that is singed and burned a whole bunch of scales underneath its arm. And there's exposed, there's exposed flesh there. Dragon scales are tough. It's the reason Darsh wanted that for his shield. Dragon scales are tough. But if you can get past them to the meat underneath, you can do some pretty serious damage. And it's in that moment that Darsh realizes what he needs to do with the bone lance. She could potentially backstab. It would probably hurt a little bit. But again, you think about a dagger to a dragon this size. It's Even if you stab the skin, it's like taking a thumbtack. You know what I mean? It'll hurt and irritate you, but it's not going to kill you. But a really big, long bone lance going in under your left arm towards your heart? That would have a much bigger effect. Because it is the left side under his arm where it's broken. This puts them into a situation where they need to do two things. Darsh needs to stab him under the arm with the bone lance and they have to somehow get him to raise his arm. Without yelling, get him to raise his arm. He can still hear fine. Dandy rushes back 
and starts running to people who are fighting whatever and stopping and trying to say it quietly enough that her dragon hopefully won't hear. It's like, we've got to get him to move his left arm. We've got to get him to move his left arm. So, so start attacking his left arm. So people start moving to his left side, drawing his attention, while Darsh and the Minotaurs are staying where they are doing their damage. So he can't turn to worry about all these little people because the big damage is coming in from up front. But the dragon is not stupid. You are correct, Turtle. And with everybody moving to the left and starting to attack that left arm, the dragon knows they know about that issue. He's still in a bit of a pickle. He's got to deal with these three minotaurs in front of him. So he does. In a moment unsuspecting, he spins, literally spins, whipping his tail around, hitting all three minotaurs. And they go flying. We rolled for this. Darsh was using the Bone Lance against him. It's still a magical weapon. It did pretty well. He was using it against him. When he gets knocked, the Bone Lance goes flying out of his hand. Darsh is down for a moment. He's not unconscious, but he's definitely got his bell rung. All the Minotaurs do. Garrick actually got it the least, just because Darsh and Jorn got, took more of the brunt. So Garrick's up quicker, and he's, he throws a quick one of his little heels, because he only got little heels, throws a little heel on Darsh. Jorn's stunned, but he's not as bad. Darsh took the brunt of it, because he's doing, doing the brunt of the damage. You, you pull aggro, you're the tank. That's how that works. So now the dragon is fighting everybody who's not as dangerous, except the mages are now a bit more into the fray. Most of the Ormanian elites are gone at this point. What few are left are fleeing to the tower. So it's just our people against the dragon. So the mages are now what spells they still have, Luckily, they're not fools. They brought a bunch of magic items with them. They got a couple wands. They got some potions. They did not come here completely empty-handed. They're not fools. Artemis and Mercy in the Mage Tower made sure these guys were stocked. So they've each got a couple wands of magic missiles and things for, if nothing else, they can still do some damage. They've used them a little bit in some of the previous fights, but more for this. So they start shooting out their spells, which helps against the dragon and evens it up a little bit with the loss of Darsh. Darsh stands up, and even though he's received that heal, he can barely move his left arm. Because the tail came this way, right? Because he turned to the left. It hits him, and and his whole shoulder, slightly out of the socket, Garrett popped it back in, but it's just in pain. He doesn't have the big heels. Miyash is over there taking care of people. He can't, give me a heal. It's not like that. He can barely move his left arm. He still has his right arm, and he grabs his sword, and Garrig grabs the bone lance. Jorn, Jorn's like, I'll be there in a minute. He's getting himself up, and they rush into battle, but now Garrig has the bone lance. The fight once again ensues. The dragon is irritated <laughs> to see Darsh and Garrig back in the fight. Jorn takes a couple rounds to show up. But even the dragon can see Darsh isn't doing the damage he was, and that his arm's almost just hanging limp from his side. The dragon would chuckle if he could make a noise. He's going, the battle ensues. So, it's at this point, decisions had to be made. 
I want you to remember that I don't pick on people specifically. I roll the dice. Derek takes a huge hit. Big one. It's just the way it worked. Darsh and him were next to each other and there's still a threat. The dragon comes down and literally bites into him in the shoulder. Gets a grip on him and lifts him up and tosses him. Garrett flying off. Of course, the bone lance falls to the ground. Well, the dragon's tossing him up there. Darcy looking down at it. Seamus reached down and grabbed the bone lance. Dropping his own, because he uses a big war hammer. Dropping his hammer, he starts using the lance. And again, it's more powerful than his hammer. So it's actually doing better in his hands. Seamus is a big dude. He's a strong guy. Now, the dragon knows this lance is an issue. It's a magical item, but, you know, it, I don't think it quite realized what the bone... The bone lance doesn't have special abilities per se until they're activate, and they've not activated yet. But this is going on. Seamus tries to go in with the bone lance. Seamus takes a really big hit. He falls to the ground, not unconscious, but stunned. As he stands up, he grabs a weapon, and the first thing he grabs is his hammer. It's what was beside him. And he's back into weapon, but he does, he's, he's being attacked by the dragon. He doesn't have time to look for it. He's attacking. And the bone lance rolls sideways. And Lars, one of the Owens brothers, picks up the bone lance. It's at this point that Magnus whips out his last fireball. He'd been saving that bacon. And he whips that fireball right at the dragon's head. Now, the scale's mostly immune to fire, but still the eyes and such are sensitive. The dragon rears back a bit in surprise, not expecting that. He'd been waiting for a moment to use that. Hits him in the face and comes back a bit. Darsh decides it's at this moment... Decisions have to be made. I keep saying that because that's what happened. And Darsh charges in and grabs the dragon's arm and proceeds to lift it. Darsh is strong. Unusually strong. And normally, he still wouldn't be able to touch this dragon's arm. But the arm is damaged and was unsuspecting. The dragon's face is back, the fire closing its eyes, and suddenly something grabs his arm and pulls it. And you can picture Darsh doesn't even have his weapon in his hand this time. He's just, with everything he's got, rolling strength, just trying to lift it up as high as he possibly can. He doesn't even know who has the lance at this point. But he lifts it up, and sure enough, as he does, you can see that opening where there's just three scales missing. Scales around it busted and chipped and such a little bit, but that was a good hit. And Lars just comes charging in, and with all of his strength, shoves it up into the open wound. The bone lance hits flesh. Not scale, 
but flesh. And it comes alive, and it starts pulling itself deeper, digging further into the meat, going in deeper and deeper, and the dragon starts to scream as it moves, digging itself, slowly spinning like a drill, not like, but just slowly spinning and grinding deeper in. The dragon reaches down and starts clawing at himself, trying to pull it out, pulling even more scales out. As blood starts leaking out of this wound under his arm, the bone lance is completely in there at this point. And the dragon is literally trying to dig it out. And while this is going on, everybody attacks the dragon. Jorn's back up. Garrig is still way over there. We don't know if Garrig's alive. He's laying halfway across the valley at this point. Everybody with a weapon left or a spell left is unleashing it at this moment. And the dragon screams one last time and then its body topples forward. And as it comes towards them, everybody runs. And the body hits the ground with a huge crash. And dust fills the valley. Now we're going to talk about what's going on inside the tower. So, this is the section that I read to Mercy. You make your way up the stairs inside the sacred tower of the gods. Making your way onto the next level, you see doors lining the walls. You easily recognize the symbols on them to be that of the gods. You do not tarry long as Tobias leads you up the next set of stairs. Finally, you come to the level he seems to be seeking. You see the door with the symbol of Pandora across from you. But before you can move towards it, Tobias places his hand on your arm and shakes his head slowly. Following his gaze, you all turn to look at Weston, who stands as if a man entranced, staring at the door bearing the symbol of Zorn, God of Truth. Seeing it, Mercy too was overcome with awe. She could feel the power of the God she worships flowing from it beckoning. My whole life I prayed for this day, said Weston in a whisper, barely able to speak the words. And now that it has come, I'm not worthy. After a moment's hesitation, Mercy steps up and the two of them stand before the door. Mercy saw her hand trembling as she reached to open it. The door opens easily. She did not hear Tobias telling her friends to wait as the door closed quietly behind her. Mercy and Weston found themselves in a great hall, much like the one at Serenity, only much larger and much more grand. Tables lined the rumors around her, each filled with food and drink. Sitting at each laughing and telling stories are hundreds of warrior men and women. Dressed differently, there are knights, Amazon, barbarians, even creatures neither of them have ever seen before. But here they are all comrades sharing a feast and toasting their victories. Among them can be seen scholars 
historians, philosophers, those who also seek the truth in other ways. Together they are all allies, all seekers and protectors of the truth. Behind them on the walls decorated are weapons of splendor and tapestries showing amazing battles and wars. Both Mercy and Weston continue forward towards the table at the far end of the room, both feeling incredibly nervous approaching the large man at the end of the table. And thank you, Truden, for the sub. I appreciate that. They stand before Zorn, god of truth. Dressed like a paladin himself, a great warrior. His helm sits beside him. You never right can tell his features. He always seems to be a warrior, but maybe he's an elf. Maybe it's hard to tell sometimes. You, you, when you think back, you, you can't remember exactly. Was he human? Was he an elf? You can only remember that he just glowed. Weston falls to his knees. Tears clearly flowing down his face. And whispers, I'm not worthy. My dear children, says Zorn, if you were not worthy, I would not have chosen you. And my words are only truth. Stand. Weston does as he's bid. Mercy, too, is just standing there shivering as her lord looks down and smiles at them. I have chosen you as my champions in this battle for reasons. Even now, the daughter of lies seeks to break the truce. She violates our laws. Though I must say I'm not surprised if it was to be one of us, it would be her. She has tried this before. And so I'm taking an active step against this. It has been approved by the others. In this battle, you shall stand for me. My son, in your hands you hold a hammer of truth, which is much more than a weapon. It is the destroyer of lies and falsehoods and those illusions, the trickeries, it is a hammer of truth and will guide you to the truth. And Artemis, your friends outside, will assist you. But in all things, you must move quickly. And no matter what happens, you must fight to win. There is much more at stake here than you can ever imagine. You are capable of winning this fight, regardless of the cost. Go with my blessings. And as he says that, they literally feel energized. They, they can feel, it's almost like, a, it's like you're smelling that first breath of fresh air. It's like that, they, their wounds seem healed. They feel strong, stronger than ever. They feel themselves, that load is being lightened.
force the daughter of lies back into the box she should stay in. But I want you to survive. You're not meant to sacrifice yourselves this day. That is not what will bring victory in the end. You still have much to give and much to teach. And I cannot afford to lose this. So fight smart. Fight hard. And fight knowing that I am there with you. He leans back in his chair and he smiles. And they both just kind of nod and look at each other and they're like, okay. <clears throat> and they turn around and they walk. And as they're walking, they can see that everyone in the room has stopped and is staring at them. And as they walk by, each one's raising their cup. Raising their drink. Their mug, whatever it is they're carrying. And Weston and Mercy can't help but smile. And as they're reaching the door and about to leave, they hear in their minds, you will always be welcome in my halls. I shall see you again. There's no door there, just a doorway, and they walk through it. And find themselves, once again, standing on the tower, their friends waiting for them. Now, for their friends, they were in there about three seconds. To them, that was about a 10 or 15 minute conversation. Tobias smiles and looks at Mercy. His hand on his shoulder goes, and now we're ready. Let us go. And he doesn't lead her to Pandora's door. Instead, he leads her up the stairs even further. They make it to the top level of these stairs. And here there are only three doors, much as was described by Darren. The three doors of the elder gods, the three gods. But there's another small set of stairs Darren didn't mention. It appears to go up even higher. And it's up these stairs that Tobias leads them. Moments later, they find themselves on the top of the tower. And they see there multiple people. Marcus, of course, the emperor is standing there with a quite angry look on his face. Obviously, he was looking down, watching what was going on below and not happy at what he's seeing. A little bit past him, and it's a decent-sized tower, a little bit past him, they see several, nine, in fact, clerics of Pandora, all chanting and casting some type of spell. And strapped to a table is a female form. Only one person here recognizes that. Because Mercy was the only one who ever met Tiara, the Emperor's first wife. Their ally, leader of the resistance, and that person who helped them escape from the arena and Ormon those many years ago. She lay there, strapped to this. It's kind of like a, a leaning backwards kind of a thing. She appears unconscious. But she's glowing as these priests are casting their spells. 
Marcus turns. His eyes furrow. You are beginning to bother me. Then he smiles, but not for much longer. I admit, your wizard here was quite the enigma. It took me a while to remember that voice. See, last I heard it, it was screaming. So much screaming. And I remember the last thing you said in those screams was that one day you would come for me. I laughed. I have to say, I'm impressed with your tenacity. You've gone through so much. It doesn't matter. Your magical staffs and your weapons, your heroes and your champions. I am the chosen of a goddess. I am the emperor of the largest nation of this new world. That is yet to be proven. I'm just saying that's what he said. <laughs> And I'm also the head priest of Pandora. You've inconvenienced me enough. Without any other words, he draws his sword. He's a sword and shield guy. And walks towards them. The fight ensues. Now, in the front, there are three of them. Right? We've got Weston... We have Mercy, and we have Quan. Quan's still there, in case you guys forgot. Quan's still there. And in the back, we have Artemis, and we have Tobias. Now, as Marcus starts moving towards them, eight of the clerics break off and start coming forward as well. And they all pull out swords that are curved and jagged. In fact, they almost look like claw marks. The, 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 the jags that stick out. Almost look like talons. Cat goddess. It's a theme. Only one cleric is still there and his, his hood has fallen back. And seeing his white hair, Mercy recognizes Lomar of the Nine, the head of the Nine. And also the head torturer. Just saying. So it's Marcus and eight clerics of Pandora. Not eight clerics, but eight of the nine. The most powerful clerics underneath of the emperor himself. They're outnumbered, but they've got some things. So this battle starts out right off the bat with Tobias having to do most of the focus work towards the clerics, because that's eight spellcasters being tossed at them. Artemis is in the back trying to heal who needs and if there's a round where she can't. She's also casting blessing spells because that's another thing she can do that helps boost and some helps with the stats and the rolls. Sometimes it gives them perks. So she's using all the blessing spells. She did a couple before they even came upstairs, but she did. she's tossing out more now and re recasting the ones that are fading off because some of them only last a few rounds. So she's doing that when she's not healing. And the Emperor is fighting Mercy Weston and Quan. Now you remember Mercy's fought him once before and it was in the dream. So Mercy doesn't know 
Was he stronger in the dream? Or is he stronger now? So she's being cautious when she goes into this. And she actually is trying to get Quan to stay back a little bit. He doesn't listen real well. But she's trying to keep him back a little bit. Because of the three of them, he's probably the squishiest. She really doesn't want to lose him. She's very attached to her knights. Weston, who's now, instead of wielding his... he Remember, he uses a huge two-handed sword. He's a paladin who uses a two-handed sword. A big one. Almost a Final Fantasy side sword. I'm just kidding. Nobody can use that. But it's that big. It's a huge one. But it's still strapped to his back. He's not even carrying a shield. It was lost in the battlefield earlier. Now he's just wielding this hammer. And the hammer is not a big two-handed. It's a one-handed hammer. And so he's attacking with that as much as he can. He's got gauntlets on, so he can even deflect some blades and such as needed. He's got probably bucklers and such on there. So he's coming out with that hammer. The hammer doesn't appear to be doing much. It's a, it's a plus blah, blah, blah weapon. Uh, it's glowing a little bit, but it's not really doing anything. And at no point did anybody tell anybody how to use this. He just knows that he has it, and he's supposed to use it, so that's what he's trying to bunk the Emperor with. Well, Mercy's trying to bonk him with her Morning Star. And Quan, the only person with an actual blade, <laughs> is trying to use his sword. So this fight starts off. So almost immediately, of course, the Emperor <laughs> hooks up Quan. Like, right off the bat, he faints Mercy and just goes at Quan. And gets him good. Like, literally, just a big slash. And Quan falls back. It's the first healing spell that Artemis has to do is to heal Quan because it's just a slice across his chest. And his weapon hits the ground, and he falls back and stumbles and lands on the ground. Artemis rushes up and immediately starts healing him. But Quan almost immediately hits the ground. And it's just Weston and Mercy at this point. And the two of them are doing their best to stay separate, to divide his, his combat. You know, get on the sides. It's harder to fight when you got two people like this, especially when he's, like him, using a one-handed weapon and a shield. So he's deflecting, he's stabbing and stabbing, but he's trying to deal with that. The Emperor's no slouch, and he's also a spellcaster. He is a cleric. So he's got perks and spells of his own. And he's casting, you know, these pop out occasionally. He's obviously not using any big-level spells, because you can't do that while you're wielding weapons. It takes finger movement. But he does have some minor ones he's able to toss out. And he's got a fair amount of magic items on himself, to be honest with you. So this fight's happening. Now, while this is going on, Tobias, as I mentioned, is fighting against the clerics and stalemating them. There are eight of them, and several of them are coming in with swords and such, and some of them are casting spells. Uh, Tobias is a mage, but Tobias, if you remember... From the very beginning of this, his specialty has always been magic items. And he's also the only person supposedly in existence who knows rune magic. So, he starts pulling items out of his robes that are covered in runes. And he pulls out a dagger. And he throws it in the air. Quickly makes a motion with his hands... And the rune on the dagger flashes and starts attacking like it's being wielded. It's one of the items he has. So now one of the sword bears is fighting against this dagger that's swinging at him. 
He also had a couple rings. He had a couple wands. He has the Staff of Winter, which itself is a bit of an issue for them still because it's very powerful. Although he can't use the blast like he did on the dragon, it has a cooldown. <laughs> Staff of Winter with a cooldown. But it has it he can't use that, but it still has some minor abilities as well, and it's a plus weapon. So he's well never been a melee fighter. He has items that are help evening that up along with his spells. Quan now is getting up and he's he's got a slice that literally it cut through his armor that he was wearing. That was a his, that's a magical sword that the Emperor is wielding. So it cut through his armor, he's got a slash. And he wants to jump in and help them, but he sees Tobias against the, all of these, and he's like, if Tobias falls, we're in trouble. Right? Because Tobias is the equalizer in all of this. And so he goes and helps Tobias instead. And Tobias doesn't say anything, but seeing him when he comes in, he alters his attacks to make sure he doesn't affect Quan. And now Quan is running in against these clerics, and while they are very powerful clerics, melee is not their main skill. So it only takes, a, I think, two rounds for him to take one of the clerics down. Because they weren't expecting that. He doesn't take them all down that quick, because they are still very powerful clerics. But now they're having to focus a little bit more on Quan and not on Tobias, which gives Tobias the ability to do his jam. So... In secession, two of them go down quick. Quan takes one. The others turn to focus a bit on Quan. Tobias unleashes a stronger spell, which takes out another one. In that moment, Tobias takes his first hit. So he had to open himself up a little bit to hit that, that spell he was trying to do. So now he's got two on the meleeing. Right? There were eight of them. Two of them are down now. There's six. He's got two on him meleeing. Two of them are meleeing Quan, and the other two are trying to cast spells. In this moment, Artemis, who also has a wand of magic missiles, takes that out and pops it at a couple of the mages, or the clerics that are casting spells, trying to interrupt their spells. While she she doesn't need to heal anybody at the moment, she's waiting because she has some big heals. She doesn't want to waste them on five hit points. You know what I mean? On a small wound, I don't want to waste my big heal. But she's being careful because she doesn't know how big these hits can be. So she's trying to keep an eye on that casting her blessings, and when she has a free round, she's popping magic missiles over there to the irritation of those clerics. The Emperor and Mercy and Weston are just doing a dance. I mean, they're really just constantly moving. Um, everybody's taking hits at this point, although, to be honest, the Emperor's doing better. He's done more damage. They've got more hits in. But he's doing more damage with his hits. That's a pretty savage sword he's got. It's an evil sword. It's a Pandora Blessed sword. No one will be using it if they win. I'm just saying, it's a pretty boss sword. And so, he that's going on. Now, a couple things happen really quick in just a couple concession seconds. Everybody falls down. Everybody up there, every single person, including Tobias, falls. When a huge crash hits the ground from somewhere nearby, shaking the earth around them. Dust blows up across them. And they all stand up to struggle to see what's going on. There are a couple of screams. And the dust quickly blows away like a wind has gushed it out. And Tobias is standing there 
with a glowing rune in front of him, and it's almost like a wind is blowing everything away. And it creates a big circle of non-dust. Like, it's all dust everywhere in the whole valley at this point. But it's just a globe around the top of this thing that is not, and the rune, he's just holding it like this. Two of the eight have fallen. In that, Quan didn't stop moving. Quan fell, but he immediately got up, and the dust does not affect Quan. Quan is a, is, a, is, a, is a blind fighter. Blind fighting is a skill in the second edition that a warrior and certain people can take where you can fight in the dark without negatives. Uh, this would count in that situation. He successfully rolled it. Um, and he was able to take out two of them in the confusion. So now we're down to four of the clerics. When I say of the eight, I mean of the eight that attacked originally. Two were down, two more were down. There's four. The only one who seems to still be standing is Lomar, who is still casting the spell on Tiara. No one has time to do anything about that. But they're all conscious of it. So that was the first thing that happened. The dust, the rune that blew that out. The Emperor stands up, but his shield is slid away. So he reaches down and pulls out another sword. This one's shorter. But it's glowing a little bit. So he's got a big sword and a small sword, and the small sword's glowing a little bit, and they already know the big one's a trouble. So now he's coming in, and the fight starts again. Tobias casts two big spells very quickly, which kills one of the clerics and blows another one off the roof. They're about five stories up at this point. Maybe dead, maybe not, but not in the fight for right now. That leaves two. Quan takes out one. And the last one... runs back to Lomar. Quan starts to chase him. But the clear turns, and now he has something in his hand. Looks almost like a rod... A metal bar. It's kind of gold looking. And he said, For my goddess, and throws it to the ground, and it clangs. And no explosion. No boosh. But the he screams out in pain and falls to the ground, his skin turning a strange color, choking, tongue hanging out, bile. But as he does, the Emperor seems to grow just a little bit. And starts moving a little bit quicker. A little bit faster in his attacks. Starts doing just a little bit more damage. The battle continues. Tobias now has a choice. Does he deal with the Emperor? And does it deal with Lomar? He chooses the Emperor. That's why he's here. And so he moves forward to help. Now he doesn't rush in and start meleeing, obviously. But he moves closer and he starts casting spells towards the Emperor, while at the same time not trying to hurt Mercy and Weston. 
one spell comes in and hits the Emperor, and that's all the Emperor is willing to deal with. And he quickly throws something to the ground, which doesn't do much, but almost like firecrackers. Pop, 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 pop. Actually, there were eight pops. Eight exactly. Of course, everybody jumped back, not knowing what's going to happen. And then they stand up and they look at the Emperor. All nine of them. Nine Marcuses all start moving separately. They're not like all moving in unison all the same way. Nine individual Marcuses are now standing in front of them. It's quite a pickle. Now the battle's a bit of an issue. The tower is a decent size, but nine of them are going to have a bit of a hard time all rushing in just on Mercy and Wesson. Unless they try to push them off the top, which is which they try to do. They start to try to encircle and force them backwards. Again, the thing that keeps that from happening is Tobias. Tobias casts a spell at one, hitting it for some damage, and it reacts like it takes damage. But they're all acting that way. And they're all, everyone that hits, is dealing damage. And that's important. Each one of them that is hitting someone is in fact dealing damage. Weston takes a big stab. Shoulder. On his left side. Remember, he didn't have his shield anymore. So he doesn't have that to protect him. He takes a stab from the Marcus he's currently fighting. A couple of them. While there are nine of them now, none of them are moving quite with the speed and accuracy the original was before. It's almost like his skills were also slightly divided over these nine. And while he takes that stab, he gets the stab. At the same time, he brings that hammer of truth around and hits that Marcus square in the side of the head. Would kill a normal person. Instead, there's a pop noise, and that Marcus disappears. The other Marcus is looking at him for a moment, confused. Weston looks at the hammer and smiles. He's like, I know what it does now. And he starts attacking with literally reckless abandon. What does that mean? That means that he will jump in and let you stab him if it means he's going to get to hit you. And sure enough, that's what happens. He goes charging forward and Marcus stabs at him and he feels the pain. At the same time, he's able to hit that Marcus, maybe in the chest or in the shoulder. But each time he does, there's a popping noise. Just like the popping before. And that Marcus disappears. All the Marcuses are concerned now. One of them tries to keep Mercy's attention while the others all turn on Weston. Tobias has a big grin on his face. He's not casting spells right now. He's waiting to see which one is the real one. And Weston starts making his way through them. Again, each time he does it, a new spot he's bleeding. A new spot he's hurt. He's taking a stab. He's taking a slash, whatever. And in each one, he's willing to do that to be able to squarely hit that Marcus with the hammer. 
until it comes down to two. These are one against Mercy, one against Weston. Each one's fighting solo on. Now at this point, Weston slows down for a moment. And he moves forward. This Marcus is smarter and jumps back out of the way. Weston wasn't swinging for him. He swings and whips that hammer at the Marcus facing Mercy. There's a pop. And the Marcus disappears. And the hammer falls behind him, almost off the edge. Laying on the ground. With no weapon, this Marcus moves forward and stabs him right through the chest. Right through his armor. Right through. And Weston and Mercy and Artemis are like, oh my god. Tobias is even concerned. But Weston just smiles and goes, I can see the truth. And he reaches up and he grabs Marcus's head and squeezes. And there's a pop noise. And the last Marcus disappears. And where stood a moment ago Lomar of the Nine, now stands the real Marcus. Visibly angry. This whole time they've been fighting, not once have they been fighting the real Marcus. Marcus tosses away the robe he was wearing, without a word draws his sword and moves in. The battle takes about six rounds. During that time, Weston, whose wounds didn't exist, that's why he didn't care. He could see the truth from where, from where he was on the hammer, that the wounds he were taking weren't real. And when the last Marcus disappeared, so did all the wounds on him. So the hammer truth let him see through those illusions. And so while he was doing that, He's, now he, he does take a few real hits from the real Marcus. This Marcus is not quite as flippant and yappy. This Marcus is the real Marcus, and he's more serious, and he's coming at them. And in these six rounds, Weston takes a big hit. Mercy takes two big hits. And one of those hits almost kills her. It's a massive hit. And it was a cut, like, straight across the neck, and she falls back holding on to it. Artemis had one big heel left, and she charges in and grabs Mercy and puts her hands on her because this spell requires physical contact. And she casts a spell called Heal. Heal is the most powerful healing spell and it basically puts you all the way back at the beginning. Full hit points, full energy, full whatever. It is a full heal and she's got one of those a day. She can cast that one time and she's been hanging on to that till she needed it. But when she rushed in to do that, she put herself in harm's way. And Marcus runs her through. Not completely through the chest or the side, but he runs her right 
right above, right through the shoulder. Right through the shoulder. And he just turns it a bit and then yanks it out again. She falls back, screaming out, because that hurts. She doesn't get stabbed a lot. She's the healer. Who let this happen? You know, it's just one of those things like, this isn't supposed to happen to me. And she falls back with a, uh. And she's stabbed, and now her arm is almost twitching because it's just right through the tendons. He's leaned in to stab her, twists it, and pulls it out. And as he does, Mercy, who's still on the ground, he's above her, takes her morning star and whew, right at his face. She throws it. Now, mind you, he's only like a foot out of her reach. It's not going to be hard to miss. I still made her roll, though. So somebody can roll a one, and then I get to have some fun. But this situation, she rolled successful. And hits him square in the face. And he goes stumbling back. His nose literally cracked to the side. Blood coming out a little bit in his eye. And Mercy stands up. And her morning star appears in her hand again. Because that's that cool ring she has. And Mercy moves forward. Weston has that big cut. He's on the ground. He's trying to get up and helping. And he's coming. He's got his big two-handed sword now. And he's getting in a hit every so often. But he's really not being that much use. It's basically Mercy versus the Emperor. And you can tell that that nose cracking thing, like it's bent to the side. It's like scooshed up and half up his cheek. It's a huge gash in the face. <laughs> no, Panda, but that would have been amazing. I wish that would have happened. Although technically he's wearing armor and it's a blunt weapon. Probably still would have hurt. But the face definitely had some issues. So Mercy is now back to full hit points. He's not at full hit points, but he's technically stronger than her. And this battle goes on. All that happened in the first three rounds. There were three more rounds of these two. And I'm telling you this. When I'm, I didn't make this up. I couldn't have been this lucky to make this up. The Emperor rolled poorly. Mercy rolled well and got a good hit in. The fifth round, Mercy missed and the Emperor got a good hit in. In the last round, Tobias, by the way, isn't casting spells because it's he can't do it without hitting Mercy. I'm just saying that out there. And he's trying to see to Artemis right now because he doesn't want her to die either. In case anybody asks why he's not. In the sixth round, Marcus rolls very well and stabs Mercy really badly. But Mercy rolled a natural 20. Young lady playing Mercy rolled a natural 20 on that sixth round. And she rolled triple damage. And when the morning star struck him in the side of the head, you could hear the bones crunch and crack 
as the side of his head literally caved in and blood came shooting out of his eyes, nose, mouth, and probably both ears, but it's hard to tell the one because the Morning Star was kind of embedded into that side of his skull. The Emperor falls back to his knees. Still not dead. That's the strength this guy has. And he tries to say something. His mouth opens up a little bit like he's trying to speak. And Tobias steps up. And he looks down at this guy on his knees. And the Emperor's now trying to reach up at him. His head, literally, this side of his face is crushed in. The Morningstar falls out at this point. Pops back into Mercy's hand. There's just blood flowing out, brain matter, literally squishing out the ear. But this guy's so strong, he's still there. He's reaching up at Tobias. And Tobias takes his hands and pushes them to the side. And he takes his finger, and in the blood that's coming out of the leaks in his skull, he takes his finger and he draws a rune. And then puts his hand on it. And Marcus's remaining mouth area opens up as if to scream. As if it wants to scream, but no sound comes out. And Tobias just stands there with his eyes closed. Everybody's just watching for like a minute. 60 seconds. The Emperor's there just shaking and shaking. More blood and stuff pouring out of him. Tobias takes his hand off. And now you may die. And just taps with one finger in the middle of that rune. And the Emperor's head explodes. The headless body lulls sideways and hits the ground. Tobias is covered in brain matter. It exploded. It was quite goopy. It's all over Tobias. At this point, Mercy's, of course, already on her knees next to Artemis, checking on her. Artemis is hurting, but she has a healing potion enough that she's able to drink to stabilize herself, because she's not able to cast a spell right now. But she's able to drink a healing potion. She's a cleric after all. She can make those. They all have a couple. And throughout the battle, there were times where even Darsh and Dandy and Minions would quaff a healing potion here and there as needed. I don't ever mention that in combat, because a lot of little things like that happen. I try to only talk about the big stuff. Wow, we are running a little late today. I hope you don't mind hanging out with me a few more minutes. I still have about ten minutes to go. But she's all right enough. Quan, who's been in the back trying to get in to help anybody, but not knowing what to do, she's been trying to protect Artemis when he could until she ran past him. Runs over to the young lady on the on the stone and checks her. But Tiara is no longer alive. With the ending of the spell, they stopped Pandora from taking over that body, but it was much too late to save her. So while they finally defeated the Emperor, they unfortunately lost her wife. She was a good person. Okay, I'm going. Checking themselves for wounds and injuries, doing what has to happen, taking their healing potions. They just start they start going down the stairs. 
they don't know if their friends are still fighting a dragon at this point. They never got a chance to look. They've been too busy trying to keep their own lives. Weston's used his own lay on heels to heal himself enough, and he walks over and picks up the hammer again. They leave the Emperor's body up there. They do not search his body. That was something Tobias is like, do not touch him. Leave him as he lays. This belongs to the gods now. And they're, and they're you know, in the back of their mind, his players are like, oh, I bet he had some good loot on him. But they let that go, and they go down. They weren't going to touch those weapons anyways, I promise you. <laughs> but they make their way down. So here's what they find. At the bottom of the stairs... Okay, this doorway is a big door. It's a big double door. There are three figures standing there, their backs to them. And hearing their footsteps, they quickly turn around. And standing there are the elves and Lucas. Obviously, both of them, or all three of them, taking cuts and injuries and covered in blood. But at seeing Artemis, all three of them kind of look at each other and smile. And the little glow in Lucas's eyes fades, and he looks like Lucas again, but not exactly the same. He just, he looks tired. If nothing else, he looks older. He didn't magically age. I'm just saying, he looks like he just went through some stuff. Artemis comes down to check them if they need heels, and they wave them off. They're like, no, no, we're okay. And they step out the door to see what about the rest of their friends. Where they find the, on the other side of that doorway close to 40 bodies. Just destroyed by Lucas and the elves. Not one person made it through that doorway. They see the dragon's body, and they see their friends around it. And they go rushing forward to check, you know, what's all going on there. They immediately take shock of who's here, what's happened? This happened to the dragon, this is what's going on. What happened upstairs? We defeated the Emperor, he's dead. Unfortunately, we couldn't save her, but this is okay, and this is going on. He's hurt, she's hurt, she's hurt, he's hurt. Where's Miasha? She's okay, she's using what heals she has left. And at the end of the battle, the end of this war, they all get to go home. But unfortunately, not all of them the way they'd hoped. The last heroic action Lars Owens ever took was to stab the bone lance into the dragon. But he wasn't able to get out from under the dragon before it fell. And though many people here are injured, many of them have wounds, and that'll probably be with them forever, scars for sure, when they were finally able to pull Lars out from underneath of the dragon, he was too gone. There was no way to save him. He was already dead. So the only full casualty in the group was Lars, one of the two Owens brothers, who you can imagine they're all upset about, Wade especially, his brother. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where he... You know, they're knights, right? He went out dealing the death blow to a great black dragon, right? Like, if you're going to go, protecting, you know, home and country from the threats, that's 
A way to go. Yes, the Allied Dragon, Balin is alive. Uh, his arm is pretty busted up pretty badly. Um, they have a couple small heals there enough to stabilize him. He's pretty sore, but he is a dragon. So his re regeneration is pretty good if they can stabilize him. And they've got him good enough that he should be able to be okay. In theory. We'll talk about that. We've still got about 10 minutes. So, taking stock... What few Aromanians were left have already left. They've run off into the woods, into the trees. They're, they've fled. If there was any. And there's no sign of the real Lomar of the Nine. I thought I'd mention that. They never fought him. Next to the Emperor, he was number two in charge. They take stock. They gather up what they can. They really don't spend time looting bodies and such in this situation. All they ever have are plus one swords, and at this point, they've got wounded to deal with. Fortunately, now that he's here, Tobias is able to open up a portal to Serenity. And they're all going to be able to go immediately home. So, let me grab a little snippet here. Because while I had to dig this out today... Because in this book, and is the actual little bit of end of the story, because at the time I didn't have the regular book and I wrote it on paper. They return through the portal, making it back into Serenity. Nothing there has happened since they left. There's been no threats, no dangers, no wars. Everybody's okay. But they portal through back into the main hall, because that's where... Tobias is kind of linked to everything. There's a rune glowing on the floor, and I probably I don't remember, but that's where he's been linking his magic to so he could portal out of there whenever he needs to. They get home, and of course, immediately word is sent to the temple, bring in the healers. Bring, bring, we need more healers. Get them over here. We got people who are hurt and injured, and Jorn's missing a finger, and his blood's falling out of his finger still, and all that kind of stuff going on. Um, they start healing up. Of course, everyone mourns Lars's death, and that's going to be a, a, a very public big funeral when that happens. Which is going to happen. But they were victorious. Now, I will say this. It's at this time that Tobias takes all three of the artifacts back. The Bone Lance literally came out the other side of the dragon. And rolled on the ground. Garrig very seriously hurt Garrig has completely lost the use of one arm. There's no healing that. In fact, it, if I remember correctly, it was mostly severed. And so while they were able to kind of heal it in some, there was no bringing it back. It just, it, it bled too long. There was no healing it. So he's almost got, at this point, it's, he usually just keeps his arm tightly bandaged up like this. Have like a little shield or something strapped to it. He's, he's still out there fighting on Darsh's boat. He's just doing it as a, as a, as a minotaur with one arm at this point. Like that's going to stop a cleric of war, right? Silly arm issue. Uh, but there were some permanent issues and permanent damage some people took from these things, scars and things. Um, over the next few days, everyone has a chance to heal up, check out what's going on. Darsh stays a few more days to make sure everything's okay and nothing's needed. And then he's preparing to return home finally, because it's been like half a year. I think it worked out to... I think it, the whole thing took like seven months from the day he came through to help with Ormond's War. Seven? No, it was eight months. Eight months with all the other things. Since the, he left home, he's been gone eight months. His wife was pregnant. He's going to go home and find out what his kid is. Hopefully a minotaur. But you know what I'm saying. 
He spends a couple days just to make sure things set, and then he, Jorn, Nathalian, and Garrick are going to head back home. Tobias and the mages uh, all go to the tower. A wizard's conclave has been called. All the mages in the battle mages and mag- everybody has to go there for that. Tobias basically says what's gone on, what's happened with Oramon, and says that, sure enough, he's going to be leaving. So he's gone for a little while. By the time they got home, when he left that field, before he walked through the portal, Lucas took the time to take off the armor and the sword and just drop it on the ground. When he walked through that portal, he was wearing just his un, you know, clothes, like not naked, but you know, just like clothing you'd wear under your armor. And when he walked back home, you looked at him and he just, for the first time ever, he really looked old. Like he looked like the, because he's an old guy. He always has been. I mean, he's been in his like, he's been in his like his, I think he's like mid sixties. I know that's not old, but you understand what I'm saying in a medieval setting. He's an older guy, but he just looks worn. He tells Artemis that he he's done. That he's done all that he can do. He was successful. He's going to stay on for another month until he can make sure that there's a satisfactory replacement to take over as head of the Templars. Um, but he's done fighting. And he can, he can never raise a weapon again. He can never, ever touch a weapon. But what he does do is get a little gets a little house built for himself in Molly. Remember him and Molly are a thing? Him and the pie lady get a little house, and she still stays on working at the temple. Uh, but now her and Lucas have retired to a little house uh, not too far away from the temple. A little bit of land that Artemis gave them, had a little house built um, on the shore of the lake. A little, little bit of the, uh, the temple's lands were given to Lucas. A couple days after all this, you know, they return home, people are healed up and such. Tobias appears, and with him he brings the cleric of time. Remember the lady, Alana, from way back in the beginning? She comes back and greets her two elven Templars. Because that's part of the price. Part of the price he paid. We'll say it's half of it. Half of the price he paid to raise his weapon one more time with the skill and blessing of the Lady of Death means he can no longer also wield it in the service of life. Because even while he's been a Templar of the God of Healing, he's still been taking lives. Lady Death was perfectly fine with that. But not now. There'll be no more protecting life anymore. That's no longer something he can do. So he can no longer pick up a weapon. He can never touch a weapon in anger. I mean, he could probably walk over like, here, Jim, here's your sword. I mean, that's fine. But he's, he can't use a weapon. It's part of the price he pays. There's a bigger price if he tries. The lady returns. The two elven Templars will be going with her. Um, they both talk in that five minutes before they leave, talk more than they did the entire year they were there about how much they appreciated being with her. It was an honor getting to, to, to serve with her. And she, you know, she's done great things. And, uh, hopes that they will once again get to see her in the future. They're elves, it's possible. They live a long time. Now that afternoon, while everybody's still talking and things are going on, everybody's still there, Tobias returns, comes back into the room and goes, everyone, stand back, please. People have learned at this point, you stand back when Tobias says stand back. Everybody stands back. 
And a portal, a moment later, opens, but not one of his. And a creature, it's the only thing I can describe it as, steps through. Now, this creature is about eight feet tall. Let me show you what it looks like. That is a creature called a spell weaver. Incredibly magically powerful. They are incredibly strong and intelligent. And collectors of magical artifacts. It steps through, and Tobias steps forward and nods respectfully, and it nods back. And you can tell that it's talking to Tobias telepathically. Because Tobias is like, yes, I understand. I apologize. But our need was great. You know why. So we were stopped from it and nods his head. And Tobias takes out all, has with him there, all three of the artifacts. You stole the Spellweaver's Staff of Winter. The Ice Tower, the collection of things. An apology for taking your artifact and invading your home and killing your pets. He has returned, he said, here's this and two more artifacts of power. The Spellweaver accepts them and nods. But then it stands up, and for a minute, Tobias gets for a brow like he's confused by something it said. And he said, This is Queen Mercy. She rules here. And Artemis hears a voice in her head. It's a little loud. It sounds like you got headphones on and they're one or two notches too high. She started by it. She goes, It is you who rules here. And Mercy, she's not telepathic. She goes, Yes, this is my home. The spellweaver steps before her and looks down. She's taller, obviously. Looks down at her and says, "Let me get the actual wording here." He tells her that he can. He goes. He can sense an ancient power within these walls. A power. He's not fought in a long time. She suggests, she tells Mercy, you should be very wary should you ever try to use it. The consequences may be more than you're willing to pay. And then turning, walks back through its portal, which closes behind it. What did he mean by that? What was he talking about? Well, I never told them. I guess they'll find out eventually. Minor quick epilogue. After saying goodbye, Darsh and friends return back home. It's time for him to start preparing something that he had going the next year. Darsh had been preparing for the Darshtopian Games. Minor Olympics, if you will. Something important that will be happening in the near future. Maybe setting the stage for another adventure. But he says goodbye to everyone. And uh, you know, gives everybody a hug, kisses the kids, which, you know, the kids are weird. That's a minotaur kiss. And then leaves. Seamus and Artemis, or Seamus asks Artemis for permission uh, to marry Miyasha, which, of course, she gives. The two of them end up marrying. Um, there's celebration, of course. The kids are okay. And everybody, long term, yes, very long, very long term. Very long term. <laughs> 
But it ends with, finally, the Oromanian primary threat is gone. The emperor, who's been haunting their lives for years, is dead. But is the Oromanian threat still gone? It's still a nation. There's going to be a vacuum with the emperor being gone. I can tell you that with the end of this chapter, what we've just done, I have one more storyline to tell. And then I will have told everything that has ever been played in the Merged World story. I have already been writing the new content, the stuff I've been writing in my head for the last seven years. And I'm finally getting it on paper. I will continue telling the story, even the stuff that has never been played before. So I have an intention, the every intention of continuing this for quite a while. So hopefully you guys are willing to strap in and stay with me for the long ride. Will you find out what that means eventually? I guarantee you will find out what that means eventually. Just not anytime soon. But thank you all for coming by and letting me tell Merge Worlds. This was the end of a very long storyline. No, Turtle, it was not. They never got that far. Um, this is this was kind of the culmination of a lot of storylines over time to get to this. Uh, the Emperor has been the nemesis for Serenity for a long time in this story. Um, and I'm now happy to move forward to new threats and dangers. All right, you guys have a great night.